Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 289 with my guest Stephen Brophy. Uh, this uh, episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Whether you need a landing page, a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, it's all included with your Squarespace website. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code MENTAL to get 10% off your first purchase. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, the show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a doctor, but I am a hypochondriac, and that has to count for something. Uh, the website for this show is mentalpod.com. Uh, mentalpod is also the Twitter handle you can follow me at. Uh, upcoming events, they're uh, a little ways off, but I will be appearing at lapodfest.com. Uh, it's um, September 23rd through the 25th, and I believe uh, I am one of the last shows uh, performing the night of uh, Sunday, uh, September 25th. I don't have a guest lined up yet, but... Um, it's always a good time there at, at uh, PodFest. And you can either come in person in L.A. and uh, see all the great podcasts recording in person, or you can uh, pay and watch it live streamed and up to 30 days afterwards. And it's $25, but if you use the offer code HAPPY, uh, you get 5 bucks off, and I'll get some of that money. So uh, that'd be a nice thing. I'm also going to be doing a festival in November called In This Together uh, Festival. And um, Daniel Johnson, I think you know some of him who uh, struggles with mental illness. He's a uh, musician, I believe lives in Austin. And there's a documentary about him, but he is going to be one of the guests there. Uh, I haven't nailed down a guest yet, but uh, it should be really a really good festival. And I'll put the link to that in PodFest on the uh on the website. 
Let's read a couple of surveys. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, and this is filled out by Dorian, and he writes about his depression. It feels like an emotional equivalent of watching paint dry. Uh, snapshot from his life. At one very low point, I was laying in my bed, high on drugs, and wanting to cry because I knew what I was doing and how it affected me. But because of the drugs, I couldn't cry. So I just laid there in emotional agony, wanting to feel something, but being completely helpless. Wow. That is that is the, the grip of addiction. Uh, Never Again writes about uh, her depression. Uh, dystymia uh, I think I pronounced that right. Feels like I'm running on a treadmill, stuck on the steepest incline. About her codependency, being the caregiver to the world that nobody asked for, wants, or reciprocates. That is awesome. <laughs> that is it in a nutshell. Which is the purpose of... Uh the survey about living with an abuser. Emotional abuse feels like having an inch shaved off of my height every time my mother walks into the room. Her presence shrinks me. Snapshot from her life. My mother was very keen to let me know constantly that the caring and intelligent little girl whose friends and teachers loved was not me and only she knew the, quote, disgusting and evil bitch that I really am to say your mom sounds like a warm lady and I think you need to give her a second chance. Uh, that is, by the way, the most horrible thing I've ever heard. But still, give your mom a second chance because she sounds terrific on the inside. I think once you get past uh, the rotten, sour, outer texture, you're going to find out that she has a caramely core. And <laughs> this is something Jimmy Pardo would say, caramely core one of my favorite bands in the 80s. Uh, Lavender Girl writes about her depression. Severe clinical depression feels like I have a constant fog in front of me and like another voice in me is grabbing me by the shoulders and holding me back. Oh, that is a great one. About her anxiety, it's a constant struggle of not being able to think properly and I panic about panicking about her anorexia. It's so bittersweet. You have a voice telling you that once you hit your goal weight, you'll be happy, but you're never happy. You can never please that voice, and it feels like you can never please anyone. Snapshot from her life. Being 90 pounds at 19, telling my dad that I can fit into my middle school clothes as an attempt to ask for help, hoping that he will ask about my eating disorder so I can get treatment. Instead, he says, wow, all that running you're doing is really paying off. Great job. And Sid the Squid uh, writes about his uh, major recurrent uh, depression. Believing nothing matters is better than believing it matters, and I fucked it all up. Wow, that is profound. And about his schizoaffective disorder. The scariest thing is being asked, but was it real? And me not knowing the answer. I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job. Mental illness. 
is convincing myself. I'm so alone. Why hypervigilance? I should try to do something. I hate my kids seeing me like that. I just imagine killing people. I woke up with rats in my hair. They warp reality. Am I losing myself or am I becoming myself? I go back to bed. Hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house. I was able to get myself out of Scientology. Put a gun to my mother's head and I was 11 years old. And you're just garbage moving from one person's house to the next person's house and you just hope they don't throw you out like garbage. You know, so I planned my suicide. Because you won't ask for help. I'm asking for help. I'm not pretending everything's okay. I'm not trying to do it alone. I'm really happy that I did it because a lot of good things have happened since then. That, that option just evaporated and I'm, I'm not going to kill myself. I don't think I have what the woman who is not right for me anyway <laughs> wants. I'm here with Stephen Brophy, uh, who was recommended uh, to me as a guest by our former guest, Cassie Snyder. Shout out to Cassie. Uh, Cassie. Love her. Me too. Um, she is awesome. She is. And uh, we met for coffee. Yes. We had a nice chat. We and did. Uh, we didn't find each other repellent. So That's we right. said, let's. Within uh, like a minute, I think you said, we need to record. Yes. Because uh, so. uh, sometimes when I have coffee with people, I'll be like, I don't want to know anymore. Let's, I like hearing a lot of stuff for the first time. Yeah. Um, I think that's what you sent me away. You were like, okay, we should do this. I actually we... literally shooed you away, yeah, if I'm not did. mistaken. You totally did. Yeah, I chased after you with a broom, which I thought <laughs> was like, a, little out, bit, out. a little bit of overkill. I think you enlisted some people at the cafe. And we formed a half circle. Toss me and, yeah. 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 Um, you are how old? I am 48. And you were born where? I was born in Houston, Texas. St. Okay. Joseph's Hospital, Houston, Texas. What floor? I get very specific. Oh, on my this God. Podcast. I don't know. I actually don't know. So you don't care about your childhood? At all. <laughs> <laughs> Not the specifics, man. Yeah. Um, no, I know I was born about one in the morning. I know that my mom, like, freaked out and cleaned the house, went into total nesting mode, like, hours before she had to go to the hospital to have me. That's kind of and, adorable. Uh, yeah, it was kind of cute, right? Yeah. <laughs> I know my wife was in no shape to do that when our kid was born. So uh, you, have, you, you have one child? I have one child. How old? He is 10 years old. Okay. Um, what are, let's just, just do a broad stroke of the issues that you struggle with or the traumas that you've experienced, and then we'll go back kind of chronologically and, and talk about your I, your I think life. my biggest issue, my biggest lifelong issue, which went pretty much undiagnosed, uh, until 2008 was profound depression um profound clinical depression coupled with uh and i don't really know that this was part of their diagnosis but i had extreme social anxiety which i was really good at masking but i still had like extreme like you know leaving the house was done with great difficulty and the help of a lot of drugs and alcohol um are you a sober person or, or i am okay yeah, how long been, uh four years Almost Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, that usually seems to be the first layer that you have to deal with if you're going to deal with depression or anxiety is you got to deal with those addictions. I, I can't mm -hmm. imagine any person making any headway with depression or anxiety or any of those other things. If, Although I did do it in reverse because I got on the medication, you know, had the diagnosis and got on the medication three years before I actually got clean. And, and they worked uh, for you? Oh, it worked. Oh, my God. Within, I mean, I. I, what I did was a depression study where uh, I was so depressed and I was out of work at the time and I was driving to pick up my son from his daycare and heard a ad on the radio for test subjects for this depression medication study. And I was like, screw it. I'm calling. So I did. 
And I went in and uh, didn't know if I was getting the placebo or the real drug. But within two weeks, even my wife was noticing how significantly everything was changing, like my attitude, my anxiety levels, my depression. Like I started to become the person she remembered and the person she'd married. Um, do you and, think and that, even a little better? <laughs> do you think that made it easier for you to get sober? Absolutely, absolutely. Because uh, I mean, obviously, that was all about self medication for mm -hmm. most of the years that I was doing it. It went, you know, there was the recreational aspect early on, and then once that was way in the past, then you, then you turned pro. Like yeah, any. exactly. <laughs> and uh, so I think, oh, it made it. I mean, in a way, all of that time period. 2008 to 2011 is all sort of one long progression of, you know, getting better and, you know, kind of, you know, pleased to meet me, you know, yeah, <laughs> like, where's amazing. this guy been? That's amazing. And genuinely feeling, I mean, it's only in these last few years that I've genuinely felt that I could say on a day-to-day -day basis that I pretty much like myself, you know, like I'm good company for me and therefore better company for others. So... <laughs> Well, that's great. Let's uh, let's back up and find out how you got uh, to that place. Let's let's talk about uh, your uh, your childhood. I'm going to guess that for the most part, a lot of it was probably genetic, and I think that there is untreated depression and addiction and all these other patterns in my family runs way more rampant than oh. anyone that would any of them would ever tell you uh, <laughs> or, dep depression anxiety and addiction i think is sold as a three-pack in convenience stores <laughs> right next to those vitamins you're gonna get one you might as well take the other two and i think that that's you know and i once i had a therapist the first therapist i ever went to up in the bay area who was totally pro bono uh she thinks that she was a fan of, of Sonny Bono. I couldn't. I could not let that sit there. That was <laughs> at least she wasn't an amateur Bono. Yeah. So those are the worst. Um, she might have been a fan of you too as well. I don't know yeah. which Bono she was into, but uh, and I would not hold it against any listener that right now went to the where's the unsubscribe button. Would not. <laughs> I, would, I would almost uh, respect you more. But I have so much more to share. Yeah. Um, so go ahead. <laughs> but she says she thinks that part of my depression came from, I mean, I guess the nurture. There's the nature side and the nurture side. And my mom, when I was, you know, an itty bitty infant, my dad was working in Boston while she lived in Houston. He was gone most of that year, I think. And this went on for about 18 months. And I think that my mom was probably really depressed and probably, you know, sat there rocking me in the rocking chair in our living room you know, and probably bawling her eyes out some days because, you know, she had three kids and no husband. And, you know, was this the life that she had signed on for? Mm. So that could have been an early imprint. Again, this is just a therapist telling me what she thought. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and, but I think it's something that I wrestled with from, you know, my earliest memories. And I, you know, I'm always told that I was a very happy little kid, like pre-adolescence. And certainly when adolescence hit, like, I just, you know, went from zero to giant freaking mess in about a day. What what uh what was the age that you were at? Um the age that I really that things took the downturn, I think it was got to be 13 or 14. It was my first year of high school. I was uh I had been the kind of kid who could play in my room by myself, you know, with the action figures, you know, I built the Death Star in my closet and you know like 
and I could just do that for hours and be completely content. And then I hit puberty and high school and discovered the opposite sex and fell really hard in, you know, what was love at the time, infatuation in retrospect, Mm -hmm. with this girl who was a senior and I was a freshman. So there was like... Boy, automatic, rock, no hope in hell. Reach for the stars. Yeah, exactly, why not? Exactly. Why Why reach for what's nearby when you yeah. can go for the unattainable? Yeah, why not a college girl? <laughs> <laughs> why not somebody who was already married? Maybe a yeah, teacher. Yeah, maybe one of the moms <laughs> on the block. <laughs> that would have been great. What's up, sweet stuff? You dig my but pimples? How about those guys, you know, <laughs> that have those stories where it's like, oh, my sexual initiation was uh, my best friend's mom, and, you know. <laughs> Nowadays, they call that rape yeah at the time it was just that guy's awesome yeah but uh yeah so i mean and i just i I remember i was so head over heels about this girl and obsessed about her that i pushed all my friends away i thought about nothing else it became like you know my brain became like a single track and all it was was her you know so i started doing worse in school i'm guess guessing she had no idea she had no idea yeah no, until and and actually it was very sweet because later you know I would walk by her house and you know sit on the curb and stare and you know just be sad and uh, one day she actually saw me out there and she invited me in and we had this whole conversation where wow. I like you know what was that like uh, terrifying humiliating but ultimately I think really kind of uh, you know generous on her part very kind very sweet very like. You know, you know, I mean, she could have just completely treated me like shit and, you know, humiliated me away from there. You know, what was humiliating about it? Um, I think the no, I mean, the certainty on the one level that obviously this is ridiculous. You know, there's a part of me that had to know this is ridiculous. This is a why pit- am I? Yeah. Why Ooh. am I obsessed with this woman? This is never going to be a thing. You know, I've created some weird fantasy in my mind and I can't let it go. But. You know, the did logical it, part of my brain knew this was dumb. <laughs> did it have the vibe of a pity conversation on her part? Is that what he felt uh, humiliating? I mean, certainly that was an aspect of it, but I don't think that that. But again, I think she handled it as well as anybody who was an 18 year old young woman dealing with a strange, nerdy, little obsessed 14 year old could. You know, I remember looking at the houses of girls I had crushes on and thinking they get naked in there. <laughs> That's where they're naked. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Those lucky walls. <laughs> we go ahead. Like, Do her and her boyfriend have sex in that car? I'm just going <laughs> to stare at the car. <laughs> and um, so I think the humiliation mostly came from myself, certainly not in the way that she handled it or any of that. And again, like when I look back on it, it's kind of a fond memory because I can forgive that kid. You know, that sad little obsessed boy I can forgive now. And uh, and again, she was very sweet and kind about the whole thing. Do you remember what you talked about? Um, I just remember telling her, I remember we sat on her couch in her living room. I'd you never ne- been in her next, house before. Did you sit next to each other? Mm-hmm. And was she, your heart beating fast? Oh, yeah. Oh, Were you yeah. sweating? And I could barely make eye contact. And I was, you know, and I just, she, yeah, I felt like a rabbit. She must know? have... F- thought you were so cute though seriously i mean she must have just thought that you were adorable i hope so (laughs) i hope so 
Um, I hope she was flat. I mean, she said she was flattered, of course. And uh, did you say I I have a crush on you? I want to I want to go out with you. I don't think I said I want to go out with you, but I said that I was in love with her. Oh, <laughs> no. oh I used the in love word. I wasn't yes. like, you know, I mean, yeah, I was I was as open as I could be under those daunting oh circumstances. And I saw her for the first time in like 30 years, three years ago. We had a our, my, our drama teacher had his like Mr. Holland's opus, mm-hmm. and uh, which is funny because he looks like Richard Dreyfus, But he uh, he had this big reunion of all these drama students that he had taught. Uh, over his 30-year career and we all got together and we actually were at our old high school and everything and then you know had a little party afterwards and she was still i mean like she's you know 50 something years old still as beautiful as i remembered totally sweet and the thing that i fell in love with about her just the most acerbic like you know a truck driver mouth and a really acerbic sense of humor the kind of thing I've always loved in women, yeah. <laughs> you know, that she wasn't like, you know, the little doll girl or, you know, the cheerleader type. She was like this, you know, sassy broad and she still got that in spades. And it was, and the first thing I said to her and I told my friends I was going to do this. And one of them was like, no, you can't. And the other one was like, oh, you have to. And I went up to her and I said, I've always loved you. Did she remember? And she laughed. Yeah. It was great. <laughs> Did you still feel, I mean, obviously you're married, but did you still feel uh, like a little bit of, I mean, you're, anything, in your, you're in your old school. I mean, just on a certain level. Anything, that, I just felt wistful, I think. I didn't, I didn't feel like, a, a, like I was able to do that. You know what I mean? I was confident enough in like my station in life and, you know, how happily married I am and all those things that I, you know, there wasn't any awkward kind of, it was just like, you know, but she's still a babe, you know? (laughs) And, uh, but you know, she's like only been married once she's divorced. She's, you know, single at 50. I don't know what her life is like, you know? So I think I landed pretty well, all things considered, (laughs) (laughs) but what that did do is lead to a string of, this exact kind of behavior for most of my adolescent and leading into my young adult life where I would uh, constantly fall in love with unattainable women, you know, or women who had already friend zoned me or, you know, any number. And I would become obsessed and I would be like, you know, why, why, why can't it be me? What's the deal? And it would go on and on and on to the point. It finally ended when it landed on a young beautiful lesbian girl in San Francisco. And that was probably the closest it ever came to being reciprocated. And, oh, oh, the <laughs> and irony. Talk about, and talk about unattainable. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, except for certain drunken nights, she was only interested in women. But, uh, and, and it was just like, I could not break this pattern to save my freaking life. You know, and so it was dooming me for having normal, healthy relationships with women who did like me or potentially like me. Um, and it was also, I think, a safe, comfortable place to be because I didn't have to worry about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if she's not going to sleep with me, I don't have to worry about whether or not I'm any good in bed, you know, if and she's it, not going to make a commitment. And a gazillion other things that that love addiction i'm not saying that you're a a, a love addict but you obviously went through a period of of love addiction and it's it it is absolutely that it's the safety of not having to 
actually live a life with that person and deal with their foibles and their imperfections and responsibility on your part. Exactly. Although when you've been friend zoned, you deal with a lot of those foibles and imperfections anyway with none of the freaking benefits. You know, you get treated like a boyfriend in every way, but the ways that are sort of most crucial to being able to say, yeah, I'm in a relationship with this person. You know, and then you become sort of a laughing stock to your friends. <laughs> and uh, that's good for your self esteem. Absolutely. I love her, but she lets me take out the garbage. <laughs> I sleep on the couch when her boyfriend's over. So I just listen to the wall. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I, I mean, it was uh, literally, I don't think I was 27, 28 when I finally got a girlfriend that felt the way about me and even more strongly than I felt about her. And, uh, hold that thought for one second. I'm just going to move your mic a little bit closer. Is that better? Yep. All right. So, uh, at, at, at how old did you finally, uh, it was, I was 20, I was 27 or 28 when I finally started dating, you know, got into a, my first real serious long-term relationship that was like a reciprocal, you know, Oh yeah, we really love each other and are trying to make this work. And uh, where was your depression at uh, along? Did your depression start around 13, 14? Did it steadily get worse until you got medicated? It, yes. I mean, it got yeah. worse. I mean, it was intermittent because I think it, uh, it, you know, around these. And the thing is, it would manifest itself with these obsessions, with these, you know, women I couldn't have or, you know, uh, when a relationship, however brief, you know, ended. um and that, you know, inability to get out of that mindset. And it would, that, you know, and, and so I always associated my depression with these things. So I thought it was event based or whatever, you know, and that it would take me a certain amount of time to get over it and feel like a normal person. Would there be moments when you were with these uh, women platonically um, where you would get, I don't know, a morsel of attention or something that would exhilarate you and take you out of the depression? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do any of those come to mind? Because that's another one of the the hallmarks of, of love addiction is just sitting under the table waiting for scraps and the scraps feel like a banquet. Oh, and, yeah. And, and mean, your friends are telling you, you deserve to sit at the table and have a meal. And you're like, but these scraps are so delicious. Mm -hmm. Oh, I can remember a lot of them. I remember one time uh, a birthday party. I think it was actually like a birthday dinner that these two friends – through for me and I was you know totally over the moon about one of them even though it was not reciprocated but she would always give me just enough attention because and I and that was the part thing I never saw either is that it, it they were getting something and they liked this you know and uh, that's why they would like to string guys like that along they liked that it's a sense of power puppy dog yeah. yeah and I remember one of them the one of them went home and the one I really liked it was at her place and she got super super drunk to the point that she was throwing up and I very like patiently and calmly, you know, was the one who put her to bed and cleaned up the vomit and totally like took care of her. And I felt like that's what a man does, you know, like that was my, my little morsel of like, I'm the, you know, I'm the good responsible guy. And when she wakes up tomorrow, hung over out of her mind, she's going to remember what a great, solid, responsible guy taking care of me like that. How could she not fall back in love? How'd that turn out? Uh, made no difference whatsoever. <laughs> I don't know if she even remembered it. Wow. And uh, 
and you know, yeah, I can remember times. Uh, this one girl that I was that strung me along for several years, uh, and I can just remember. T- I can remember one night sitting in this playground somewhere. This was in Austin, and we're sitting in this playground, and she's like, "Got." I'm like, my arms are wrapped around her, and she's like sitting in my lap, and we're like, uh, and the way she's talking to me, she's almost talking to me like about having a future together and all this kind of stuff, and I'm like. You know, so isn't this the part where I get to kiss her? But like by that point, I was so used to rejection that I would not even make moves because of my fear of messing up the friendship or messing up what you do have was right. Exactly. So, you know, and I think by the time I was in San Francisco and in love with the lesbian girl, I had sort of resigned myself to maybe I'm just a celibate guy, you know. Never mind that I'm, you know, masturbating four times a day and <laughs> you know, having a relationship with my pillow. Um, you know, I'm just like resigned to this, you know, maybe that's okay. You know, I mean, you're, you know, and you're living in San Francisco in the 90s. It's like there's so many different ways to be a human that, <laughs> you know, there's like nine genders. The, maybe you're that one. The least celibate city in the world. <laughs> I know. I know. And I could not get laid a- a straight guy in San Francisco in the 90s, and I was having trouble getting laid. <laughs> How old were you the first time you had sex? Um, the first time I had sex, I was 17 or 18. So I think I was 18. But it was a it senior was- in high school. I did. I mean, I had a I had a uh, girlfriend for a couple of months my senior year of high school. Um, who and it was definitely a, a case of she liked me way more than I liked her. Um, that she let dis- me have sex with her, so yeah. <laughs> so I was like, and I think that was an effort too to get over this other girl that I was obsessed with at the time. And but she kind of you know, and she was a sweet girl and she was lovely and she was, but she kind of drove me nuts. And I again, I don't know if that was because. You know, like the old Woody Allen thing. You know, I don't want to belong to any club just, that, or Groucho would, Marx, I guess originally, right? Yeah, I don't want to belong to any club that would have me as a member. Um, Woody Allen's was I don't I don't want to date any eight year old uh, <laughs> that wouldn't have me as her father. <laughs> um, That's a topic so, we could go on about for the next oh couple my God. hours. Um, but uh, and yeah, so I you know so I did you know I lost my virginity and then you know I shoot her away and I uh trying to think when the next time was but yeah there would be did long it even, dry spells did it then, even occur to you at that age that you had reversed the role of you were now the unattainable are yes you were now the unattainable to somebody else were you aware of that I don't know if I was aware of it in that relationship but I became aware of it in later relationships with where there'd be these you know again these just perfectly lovely women that if I had given them half a chance probably could have had at least a nice, you know, relationship with, you know, but I would always look at it as this all or nothing thing. Like if I say yes to her, then I could potentially be trapped in this boyfriend, girlfriend thing from which there's no escape. (laughs) Total fear of intimacy. So I would, yeah. Yeah. So I would just cut it off early. And, uh, and, and I did, I certainly did have the, it's like, now I know what it feels like, you know, now I know that that doesn't feel good. So, you know, I think I tried to handle it, uh, more gently than I was frequently handled, you know. Um, but that doesn't mean I always succeeded. When they cleaned up your vomit, you gave them a little nod, nod slipped a couple of singles in their hand. Thanks for the effort. Nobody, nobody ever had to clean up my vomit. 
Well, then, you, then how dare you call yourself a recovering <laughs> addict alcoholic? I actually didn't. I didn't puke too often either when I was when I was drinking. Yeah, I was a big. I was a puker when I was a little kid and I got sick. Yeah, and I was a very sickly kid. But as an adult, I've never been that much of a puker. What were What were your favorite substances to get loaded? Um, well, the thing that brought me low, the thing that finally got me to recovery, was uh, prescription opiates. Oh, that'll do and, it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> How and, were you scoring them at the end through the mail? Um, I was. I was. I never did that. No, okay. I never did the mail thing because you know I live with my wife and I too lazy to set up a PO box and <laughs> <laughs> it never. And plus, I had friends who had who were contacted by either uh, feds or scammers pretending to be feds after they had done that same thing. So I was kind of relieved that I never went that route. But I was able. I just got them through a, a friend of a friend kind of thing, and. uh I never was prescribed them. In fact, it started when my wife was prescribed them in 2004 for a surgery she had on her foot. And she hated taking them. So she would like, you know, because I had to hang out with her for six weeks and be her caregiver as much as possible. She'd just be like, yeah, here, take a few. And then I'd polish off the bottle. Um, (laughs) Those are amazing. (laughs) And then I didn't think about it for a couple of years after that prescription was up. And uh, until I went to work at this... uh, reality production company which oh that'll make you want to escape into opiates <laughs> <laughs> and uh and a guy i worked with a week or so into the job was like hey do you like vicodin i was like well you know i've done them a few times and yeah they're pretty fun he's like well i know a guy and uh and again it started off very like uh you know i just buy like 20 of them and take a couple take a couple till they ran out no big deal and then you know then I started liking it less and less when I ran out and wanting to feel that feeling more and more. And then I don't remember where I was when there finally the first time came that I was like, I really don't feel good now that I've run out of these pills. Like I don't feel good. I feel like I got the flu run down. I feel sick. I feel like I got the freaking flu, but with no phlegm, it's weird. And, uh, and I was like, Oh shit, I'm going through withdrawals. You know, and rather than being like a smart guy and being like, as soon as I stop feeling this way, let's not do that again. I was like, I guess I need to get more of those (laughs) because I don't like this icky feeling. And uh, that went on and on until uh, I confessed to my wife. Finally, at at one point when I was like, I reached a point of desperation where it's like, I can't keep spending this money. I can't keep feeling this way. I'm on this freaking cycle. I see where it's headed. Um, and the shame and the secrecy just taxes your soul. Absolutely. And yet, I got to admit that that was also part of something that was appealing to me about it. The ritual of the ri- scoring and, and hiding. Yeah, and having this secret, this secret of my own that was like, you know, because I wasn't using with others. I wasn't like, hey, let's sit around and do our pills. You know, I was like. You know, and and it was, I was totally, I was never sloppy or messy on them. I could go to work on them. I could like, you know, do anything I had to do and do it better. And, and that was after a lifetime of like, you know, I mean, I started with beer and I smoked pot for several years and, you know, all these different, and I had a speed problem in San Francisco for a little bit, but I would always get over these drugs and get to a point where like, I don't like this. This doesn't feel good. You know, this is icky. You know, it's making me paranoid, whether it's pot or speed. And uh, and I would quit. And therefore, I thought, I'm not an addict because I can just quit when I want to. And here's something else to fill in the gap. Yeah. And where and opiates were like, 
the warm embrace of like I didn't get paranoid. I was socially, you know, on point. I was like, you know, happier than I'd ever been. It was like, can I just be prescribed these? <laughs> I think Jerry Stahl dis- described the first time uh, he tried heroin. He said it felt like I was home, mm-hmm. like the the place that I had never been to that was my real home. That it just felt like. And I think that absolutely freaking nails it. And the funny thing is I had done heroin, like, you know, regular old street heroin a couple of times in San Francisco and even kind of enjoyed at least I enjoyed the high. What I didn't enjoy was the itching and the vomiting. <laughs> and it was like, had uh, you smoked it or shot it? Um, the first time I, th- I think a couple of times I had smoked it and really didn't get too much out of it, except for I, it's like, I feel kind of nice. Oh, but I'm so itchy. And uh, the first time that I shot it was after spending an entire day. We had gone to this Mexican restaurant and uh, called Porto Alegre in the Mission in San Francisco and ate a shit ton of Mexican food and drank a lot of margaritas. So the ideal gastrointestinal circumstances for doing heroin for the first time. <laughs> oh, my God. But, you know, tequila will lower those inhibitions. So, oh, my God. So then, you know, we pers- we go over to these uh, friend co-workers home and, still, you know, it's the middle of the afternoon and they're like, you know, I'm with the roommate who's done everything and more. Uh, and she's like, so, Stevie, you want to do heroin? And uh, we did it. And I proceeded to lay there on the bed and I felt fine. I could read a book. I would like my head felt great. I was again, like that was that comfort and home sort of feeling. But anytime I moved or rolled over or stood up, I had to puke immediately. And I was, I was vomiting to the point that it was like, uh, that's not Mexican food anymore. Is that baby food? Is that something I ate when I was a child? Is that primordial soup at this point? How can I still have bile in my body? (laughs) And I remember getting up, when we after hours of being at their place and we go out and they were regular users so they're sitting in their kitchen watching a tv that's like on top of the fridge you know just smoking cigarettes with their legs crossed uh just calmly looking at the tv and i go to say goodbye to them and luckily there was a bathroom right off the kitchen because before i can even get the word goodbye out of my mouth i had to run over and throw up for the last time <laughs> and i was like and i was like who can get addicted to this like, why is that, you know, because yeah. when you think about like, you know, like when you drink scotch when you're 13, you don't ever want to touch it again for years. If yeah. you get like your first massive drunk and vomit experience is like scotch. So you, you know, and that was kind of my experience with heroin was like all that vomiting. I don't think I'm going to get hooked. You know? <laughs> like this doesn't seem fun. Did all of your vomit make it into the trash cans? Yes. I never once like that is amazing. Or, yeah. It, but it was like. And that's it. That is amazing because it was seriously like you know Mr. Creosote in Monty Python's Meaning of Life. Greatest scene ever. Of- <laughs> I've never seen my dad laugh so hard in his life as it, when he did when I showed him that scene. It was, like, I, I, he couldn't breathe. He was laughing so hard. He was having a heart attack, but he still found it very funny. <laughs> it's my last memory of him, but yeah. it was a fantastic. It memory. was a great way to go. Um, so uh, let's back up. 
Um, unless there was more that you wanted to to share about the the, you know, I could go on and on and on. I'm sure. <laughs> okay, let's back up then to the 20s. You're in your 20s. You meet this uh, lesbian girl in San Francisco, and where where did that go? There was a point there that oh, I think um, then I derailed it. I think where that I mean that was my she was my last one. She was the last one in that chain of endless obsessions and again like in her case it was uh, as a friendship or whatever twisted relationship it was was reciprocated enough that you know i she strung me along off and on for years and i allowed it i mean i completely you know i say she strung me along like it was some active but she would do that she would do that and she would do it with these straight guys and she was a girl that you know her she never knew her father. Her father had abandoned her. I remember her telling me about when she used to work at this pizza place and she would deliver pizzas and she'd wonder if, like, the guy she was delivering the pizza to, is this maybe my dad? So I think that that's something that she was looking for, obviously, through this string of, you know, straight male relationships was, you know, who will be my father figure? Who will be my daddy? And and there was definitely a couple of occasions with her where she came on to me sexually and, again, I didn't do anything because I was like, this will just turn into a nightmare, you know? Yet you, yet you desired her. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, but I wanted that kind it. of baffles my mind, unless she was super intoxicated and you knew she wasn't uh, in control um, of her faculties. No, it was because, well, in, in the one case, the the one time that happened, she was super intoxicated and I was not. And it was like, okay, uh, this is not a good idea. And the other time, it was because she was being too cryptic. And I felt like, I know that she wants me to do something here, but I feel like if I do it, that she'll turn around and go like, you know, you forced yourself on me. You know, you, you know, like. I see. Was she manipulative? Oh, she, oh, oh yes. okay. Because yes. it sounds she like. She's very manipulative. And I can say that now because she's no longer living. Um, <laughs> so if she hears, she will never hear this. But uh, she was extremely, extremely manipulative. And uh, I'm very, just very damaged. A very damaged, like, uh, absurdly beautiful, like, model beautiful girl that you know but i would i watched her as she destroyed herself with speed and alcohol and everything else and like i remember one of the last times i saw her uh shortly before moving from san francisco she was like you know by that time she was in her early 30s and she like just was in this large parka even though it was like you know august and dude, she just smelled of cigarettes and her face was pockmarked and i mean like you could still see the beauty there, but the eye, the light was going out of the eyes and the, and it was just so sad because, you know, because she was intelligent and she was creative and she had all these things going for her, but she just would never let go of the freaking demons. Mm. And, uh, I don't, I mean, and I don't know, so, like I said, I think the thing that finally broke it, the spell was that I finally met somebody that I, I started to get those like, Oh, I'm kind of obsessed with this girl feelings. And then she ended up liking me back. And and you didn't run. Right. Exactly. No, I didn't run because I, you know, I knew she was a good man. I mean, I, you know, and I, I did. Actually, I did run at one point, I think, <laughs> because a few months into the relationship, I don't know, we dated for like eight months and then we broke up for nine months. But even in that nine months, we were constantly sleeping together. In fact, we were having the best sex of our relationship during the time when we were broken up. I don't know, again, that was, you know, part of my messed up thinking. With, what do you think that's about? Um, well, in that why, case. Why the sex is so hot? Because one of the hottest sexes, if sex, I don't know, if, 
<laughs> hottest. What, what is the word for it? Fucks? Um, <laughs> fuck sessions I ever had was with a girl. Uh, she was my girlfriend in college, and she had broken up with me, and then she wanted to have sex one more time. And um, that scrap that she threw me was like lobster. It was, it mm-hmm. was, I remember I felt so completely present. I felt it from the tips of my toes to the top of my head. And, and I also, I felt like I wanted to cry, but it was, I, I don't even know how to describe the feeling. Is it was That's that, pretty amazing. This was more, uh, I think this more had to do with, because uh, that, I don't know if that emotional component was as intense as what you're describing. I, this was more like, uh, you know how when you know you're going to have sex with somebody for the first time, once you like mm-hmm. cross that threshold, like you know the clothes are coming off, whatever, and it's like, oh, this is going to happen. This is going to freaking happen. This, that, I think in my mind, particularly at the time, was like almost more exciting than the actual fucking. Mm-hmm. So that feeling of like, oh yeah, we've now we've crossed the line. You know, this is fucking happening. We're going to fuck. And it was like when we were broken up. She would end every time we had sex. She every time, like once we'd both come, she'd look at me and go, "Like we have to stop doing this." <laughs> and like that was like the best thing she could have possibly said. It was like, "Oh, that means when we do it again, it's going to be even hotter." <laughs> um, and it was that it was that thrill of the you know slightly forbidden fruit, and also it was like the first time every time, you know, because it's like technically she might say no. I might mm-hmm. have to like you know I have to like angle for this you know to you know to make sure that she wants it and i you know like no i want it the chase is such a turn on and it and 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 i think knowing that there's not going to be a responsibility on on your part absolutely so safe but it's also so empty and then the when we were actually in a relationship together i was uh a sexual uh what's the word for it um you know lump of shit i was like i took her for granted because it was always there. So instead of like, you know, building on that and having a cr- incredible, intimate, you know, growing sexual relationship, I just took her for granted. In, in terms of uh, you wouldn't have sex with her or long periods of time where, of, you yeah. know, and she would want to. And then I would just be like, eh, whatever, you know, like my libido would just get turned way down because she was attainable and accessible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's and it's pretty easy now. You and I don't know how much I've ever thought about this, but saying it right there, it's pretty easy to see how that fits in the overall pattern, you know, mm-hmm. of my of my life and my intimate relationships. It's like, oh, and, uh, you know, and I'm sure if you asked my wife today, even she could say that that pattern is not 100 percent discontinued. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, we definitely have to work on in our marriage. And uh, and especially because we have a marriage that works so well in so many ways that it's almost baffling to both of us how off kilter we can be with that after all these years, you know, and we know we don't want to be anywhere else. We don't want to be with anybody else. But like, you know, yeah, when that when that flame is not burning, that's you can't will it. Right. You can't will it. Yeah. And if it's burning in you, you can't will it in the other person, you know, and and vice versa and it's that's the thing is for us i feel like we both want each other but we're just out of sync about when Mm -hmm. we'll have to cut all of this no (laughs) we're let's talk about um your depression let's talk about the ways that it um manifests itself 
the things that you uh, do to try to cope with it? Um, Some snapshots of when it's been really bad. I think the coping was, uh, I mean, it would run the gamut from uh, like, you know, guzzling bottles of bourbon in the middle of the day to, uh, you know, going to just going to see as many movies as I could, (laughs) you know, anything that was sort of like, you know, passive because like when I was at my worst, especially when it was the obsession and depression in tandem, I couldn't like, I couldn't read books. I could barely watch movies, anything that reminded me of anything that didn't fully just like take all my focus. I would find a way to think about the things I didn't want to think about. And I think it was funny because after my breakup with the, that first real significant girlfriend, the only thing that worked was video games. And I'm not a video game player. I don't just never been a big gamer, even though I look like one and, you know, lots of my friends are, and I like a lot of geeky stuff like comic books and sci-fi and, but I've just never been a gamer. But like in that period of time I found, and I call it interpassive because it's just the right level of engagement. And yet it doesn't, you don't, you don't really have to be like totally, you know, you're not building a freaking ship in a bottle. You're just like, I just I'm killing some things in a hallway, <laughs> and if you fuck all my focus, and if you fuck up, you can start over. That's the yes. other thing I love oh, about yeah. video games is yes. you can cha- find the right level to challenge yourself. I find that I will pick a level to compete at based on how sad I am. If I'm super sad, <laughs> it'll be like I'm going to play on the easy level today because I can't handle the thought of losing to Babylonia. <laughs> Civ Five is my uh, my game, although I haven't played it in months. But um, that that is my narcotic sometimes. When uh, and it's when easy can, to see how that how that could be. It's for, it's just the right of amount of <laughs> responsibility is probably too strong of a word, but of effort yes, and responsibility. Like it's, there's a certain there's a level of engagement that takes yes. your focus, and yet. You're not like, you know, you're not operating heavy machinery in the real world. You're You're not not. hurting anybody. You're missing out on your life to a certain extent. But (laughs) the the endorphins, uh, the dopamine hits that Mm -hmm. I get from taking down another civilization or warding off another army uh, is not unlike the feeling I would get when I would go to a dealer and and score uh, dope and be on the ride Absolutely. home. I would just feel like... Which, which is part of why I think I don't allow myself to play video games. Like, my son is very into them now, and I worry about that with him, and I could sit there and play with him, and then I, but it's easy to see how I could get sucked into that and have that be another thing. And I already do it with television and you know i mean i'm a binge watcher and you know like and there's way too much good stuff now do you watch and, the great british baking show um no but i've heard about it it's so good i've heard about it. it's it's dessert porn it's dessert porn and there's something just so great about watching british people bake they're so nice <laughs> to each other there's none of that catty american reality right. tv they have beautiful shots of the english countryside they root for each other the judges aren't uh snarky it's uh, the kind of thing that the word civilization was actually invented for yeah oh behaving in a civilized manner yes which is why you yes. can see america 
destroying the very concept of civilization. <laughs> and the bakers uh, are all amateurs, except for the two judges. But it's it's just, uh, I'm totally binge-watching. But again, I derailed our <laughs> conversation. So when it rears its head, your your uh, depression, you would escape into video games. And well, again, that was really only that one time. Because in other, mostly what I would do is isolate. I would isolate because I didn't feel like I was good company for anybody. Um, and if I did go out, I was just going to end up as a you know pity party of some kind. Uh, hard, and, to, hard to smile, mm-hmm. hard to talk. Yeah, exactly. to other people, you know. And I would try to write, and sometimes that was successful. Um, but and and I used to journal a lot. So and I and it was fascinating because I came across a bunch of them recently, and I haven't really, uh, I really haven't done that much since I met my wife. But even in that previous relationship and even, you know, for the years before that, I journaled a lot. And a lot of it was my anger, my depression, my, you know, my self-hating thoughts. <laughs> was the anger usually directed inwards or was it also directed outwards sometimes? It was a mix, but a definitely most significantly inward. Most of my – I was – I could beat the shit out of myself better than give me, anybody. Give me some of the greatest hits of your negative self-talk. Um, I mean, specifics. I'm trying to think. Like, I wish I should have brought the journals. Um, I mean, it would basically just have to do with uh, what it was about me. Me trying to analyze what it was about me that was so uh, repellent to people, particularly the opposite sex. Like, what you know? why did I always feel... You know, you know, I could be around friends or family and have this confidence and this self-esteem that, hey, you know, I'm I'm a good person and I'm funny and I'm worth knowing and I'm all these things. But like, you know, get me in a room trying to like win over some strangers and, you know, so what, feel completely lost at sea and uncertain and afraid. And was it just strangers of the opposite sex or any strangers? Any strangers. OK. And uh, and then also sometimes, you know, friends or acquaintances, too, even feeling like, you know. And that was, you know, when I was at my more, you know, anxious and paranoid when I'd feel like, you know, none of these people really want to be around me, you know. Was was there a, a – pardon me if I, you know, sound like a armchair uh, psychologist, but was there a sense of – was there a consistent sense that you were unconditionally loved by your parents as a child? Or was that sometimes interrupted or intermittent? I think I felt pretty comfortable with that. Yeah, because I was, you know, I was the youngest. I was the baby of the family. Um, I definitely felt like, you know, I was pretty, you know, nurtured and, you know, well taken care of in that respect. I mean, my dad was a workaholic. Um, He and I didn't share a lot of interests because he's very, you know, I grew up in Texas uh, football loving father, brother, sister. I could give a shit about any sports at all, ever. And I was forced to play them, and I was terrible, which just led to more of that, you know. You know, I think that's where a lot of that anxiety stems from, too, is having to be on these teams of people and feeling like an outsider mm-hmm. on the team because they didn't like me. They didn't want me there. Even guys who were nice to me in the hallways at school hated me on the freaking soccer field or the baseball team because I sucked. Did you did you feel in a certain way that your dad was disappointed? Oh yeah. And you. Oh yeah. I'm sure. Well, it's funny the more the more you describe it the more it's like oh there wasn't really a connection between 
you and your dad. I mean, just because he wasn't beating you or telling you you're a, you're a piece of shit, it sounds like he didn't but there's see a, what was unique about you and embrace what was unique about you because you he, didn't fit into his idea. I don't idea. think he understood it, and I don't think uh, – but we, you know, where we did always connect, and this is still true to this day, was uh, movies. Both love movies and both can like just, you know, and that was our thing that, you know, like when we get on the phone, we always start talking about like, you know, did you see this? Did you see this? Oh, you got to see, you know. And, and I think we've always had that kind of connection. And I think my dad was very protective and loving and my mom, too, I think in the ways they knew how to be, mm-hmm. you know, which were very middle 20th century uh, very like, uh, you know, this is what, you know, this is how the world works. This is what a boy's supposed to do. This is what a girl's supposed to do. I mean, they didn't get, you know, and they didn't get the easy ride they were looking for with any of their kids. You know, my sister, also an addict, uh, um, you know, on not in recovery, uh, although not on drugs or anything anymore, but, uh, my brother, who had a big drinking problem and was gay, you know, that was not something they were prepared for. <laughs> and, and as ultra conservative, uh, you know, Texan folks handled all these things much better than a lot of people would. Oh, that's great. And, uh, and yet still, you know, have their rigid Fox news based worldviews about certain things. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, uh, so I did, I mean, I did still always feel, loved if not understood and then and, and i gotta say too like you know when i was in high school i was in theater they came to my plays when i did you know sketch comedy and all those kind of things they came to my shows they you know um how do you make your living here in uh, la i make my living as a reality television story producer okay so you're still doing it yeah okay yeah i couldn't remember and uh yeah, till the end of time, um, <laughs> which is one of those things that uh, used to also give me bouts of depression because, you know, obviously I moved here to do such better things than that. I was going to say you should be in the Guinness Book of World Records as the only non-depressed reality <laughs> show producer. <laughs> but I think it well, I've met ones that aren't because they're really into it. There are people that are really into it. I think it. those are called and- psychopaths. <laughs> I'm not going to name names then, but, uh, but I made my, and again, I think this all came within the, you know, getting treatment and getting into recovery, but like I made my peace with it to the point that it's like, oh, this is actually a really good job in a field that uses skills that I have that doesn't take over my life to the degree that I can't do the other things that I love to do. And it allows me to have, you know, to pay a mortgage and, you know, it allows me to like feed my family and clothe my kid and do all those things and take the occasional vacation. And like, you know, this doesn't suck, you know, and I'm pushing 50. I don't have to sit there and go like, but tomorrow I'm going to sell a script and be a showrunner on my own HBO series. (laughs) It's like, I see how this town works. Yeah. And there are, you know, I, I make fun of reality TV. There are great shows. I mean, I like the Great British uh, Baking Show. It's, you mentioned. Yeah. And there, <laughs> and there are good there are good American ones, too. I don't. Well, and, uh, and right now I work on a very good show. So I feel like. Can you, do you mind saying the no, one? No, no. Uh, somebody's got to do it. It's uh, Mike Rowe, who used to do Dirty Jobs. Mike's a nice guy. And uh, it's for CNN. So nobody watches it, unfortunately. But it's a really quality show it's one of the it's one of those shows that i've worked on and this has happened 
more in the past few years instead of less, which is great, that I'm proud of, that I'm like, oh, this is a good piece of entertainment. Even though I don't personally go home and watch a lot of reality television, I'm happy to go home and like sit and watch the episode that I worked on with my family and be like, I That's did this. awesome. That's awesome. And, uh, Would you ask somebody at CNN why every time I want to catch a breaking story, I turn CNN on and it's Anthony Bourdain in a hut eating a chili? <laughs> <laughs> because they're uh they're in a rebranding period i think okay i'm not a big fan i want to I, I want somebody to be uh uh doing news uh around the clock but, right but go ahead right and yeah. that, that's and the thing is that they're they're doing that neither fish nor foul thing where they're now they're trying like our show comes on i think right after bourdain um and so they're trying to expand into prime time Entertainment, they're entertainment shows. You can't call this. It's not even news based. It's not even. You could say it's a magazine show or whatever, but it's not. It's not. I think it's desperation. It sounds like they're doing what how MTV ruined itself by not having. Where's the music? Where's the music? Yeah. Where are the music Where's videos? The music? But um, so uh, you enjoy doing the um, uh, the reality TV thing, and you got you got a good job, and it gives you a sense of uh, purpose. Providing for your yes. family. Yeah. And I get to use my writing skills and, you know, there's a yeah. creative aspect to it that's, and, and, and I've reached this point though where I'm like, I've been doing the story producer thing for a long time and, uh, I could advance to the next level, which would be like, you know, which would just entail more responsibilities like making schedules and, Basically, it's that level where the creativity starts mm -hmm. to get leached out and the real responsibilities start to – and I don't know that I want that. Like I, That's I, such a mature decision to and – I, and I, But I have to have conversations with my wife about like I don't – I mean, yeah, I could potentially make more money, but then you also could never see me. You know, where all my you know, work schedule doubles or, you know, I, I'm – coming home stressed to the nines over, you know, stuff that at the end of the day and the end of our lives will seem very, very trivial. But I get to cry on a granite countertop. <laughs> and those tears wipe off so easily. Like they were never there. <laughs> so let's back up to the the greatest hits of the negative uh, self-talk. I, I felt like we... Uh, we kind of went... Yeah. Yeah. It's like we're having a conversation. Things well, keep it's, looping it's around. Bullshit. And <laughs> it's bullshit. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think, again, like, God, I, I just wish I had those journals in front of me because it was amazing how repetitive some of those beats could be over the, you know, I'd look at one entry from, you know, 1993 and then another one from 1998. And I'm like, you're still whining about the same shit. And... uh and most of it, you know, it would, ha it would have to do with productivity because, you know, I've been calling myself a writer since I was in the second grade. And yet, you know, I didn't really finish anything of any, like, noteworthy worth till I was 30, I think. And uh, even that was unpublishable. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it had to do with, a bit, you know, just beating myself up for all the things in my life that, Especially in those San Francisco years, because I was working in restaurants and cafes. I was a college-educated person who, you know, was living with, you know, six roommates in the Lower Haight. You know, everyone was on drugs. And I'm like, I got to the point of, like, panic over, is this going to be the rest of my life? Because I'd meet people. There'd be roommates that came through there. They'd be like the age I am now. Like, here's a 48-year-old man living with a bunch of 20-somethings because that's what he can afford and I, I saw that 
as a possible future at one point. And I was like, I'm horrified. And I don't, I didn't know how to get out of it. I had no clue how to climb out of, you know, what it became a giant hole. And what, you know, like when I moved to San Francisco, I was 24, I was just out of college. It was like life was going to be a big adventure. I'm getting as far away from Texas as I can. This is going to be amazing. I'm going to get laid a lot. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, but then that was the next, you know, I mean, I was there for 11 years. And so, like, you know, I aged past the point of, like, hey, it's okay to be living this way. You know, it's okay to just be fucking off. And, uh, and a more, you know, a more self-aware, self-possessed me would have come to LA a lot sooner, you know, because this is where, you know, the jobs and the entertainment and the things that I really wanted to do with my life were happening. But like my generation X brain was like, Oh, that's, you know, that's sellout town. You don't go there unless you want to lose your soul, you know? And the whole time I lived in San Francisco, I believed that the civil war between North and South was real. You know, that Northern California was, you know, oh. they were st Southern California steals all our water and L.A. is just a nightmare hell pit. And, you know, fuck those people. And then you would come to L.A. and people were like, oh, yeah, I love San Francisco, man. It's cool up there. I like to get up there a couple of times a year if I can. You know, it's great. San Francisco <laughs> is fighting a war that only they know is going yes, on. Yes, exactly. Everybody down here does love San Francisco. Exactly. It's my favorite city. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a beautiful, wonderful. It was a beautiful, wonderful place. Now it's a playground for Billionaires. millionaires and yeah. yeah it's uh but uh so i mean like i think those the the whole thing there were things that i was down on myself about that were concrete like that like oh i've you know through my own laziness and inertia and depression which i didn't really know at the time is that was <laughs> pulling me down but uh i have you know i've stuck myself in this situation that you know this is going to be my life from here on out you know just scrabbling through relationships and so i might as well be drunk you know and i might as well be high because this is as good as it's gonna get you know <laughs> so what changed it um i think a, a confluence of events again i think you know getting that you know getting into that relationship changed my self-confidence because i thought oh i am lovable i am capable of you know loving and being loved and you know and i remember there was a moment when I, because because I, I got the girlfriend th literally like the same week that I got my first dog, and because he came into the place that we both worked uh, one night trying to eat macaroons behind the counter at this bakery, and I think and like I went in and saw her. She was like she had her arms around his neck, and he was this very muscular pit bull, and she's like trying to pull him away from the the macaroons, and I was like, I'm in love. <laughs> with the dog and the girl this is amazing and i remember like shortly after like once we were dating and i had the dog and the girl and I, that was like the first time after years in san francisco where i felt like that was my making peace moment with my life then you know where i went like you know things are pretty good did you like, did you say to her i want all three of us on on the bed <laughs> that just worked out that way it's a anyway. pretty good pickup line <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, he made that work out anyway. Yeah. That dog was like, I'm sleeping on this bed. I don't care what y'all are doing. And uh Yeah, so I, I had my moment of I had my moment of peace moment when I can totally remember. Like I was walking the dog one night and I was like, Wow, I have a girlfriend. 
I have this freaking dog. I'm keeping it alive. I'm keeping the relationship alive. I have a job. It's not the ideal job, but at least I'm freaking, you know, I have a roof over my head. Things are good. But, you know, once that relationship dissolved, it was actually while we were kind of in the midst of ending that relationship that I got a dot-com job. So my first ever, it was the week or within like a month of finishing the book, uh, I got a writing job and it was because I was doing this sketch comedy thing and this one of the guys who had come to see it was like these guys would be great to be writers for this it was like an animated they did like 3D motion capture animation so I imagine this was before the bubble burst it was, it was right at the end it was like we got hired in like October 1999 and within a year the company was dead yeah you know, I, you know, I had like one of those jobs too. Venture yeah. capital excitement and yeah. you know champagne bonuses and the you know like you know we we got to ride that little wave, but but it changed everything. I mean, I went from like making about I think my best year in San Francisco was like I made thirteen grand or something, and then all of a sudden I had a salary like forty fifty k, and our office was this little studio apartment on the roof of this building that looked out at Twin Peaks. And that was like the writer's room. It had its own kitchenette and bathroom with a shower. And I was like, this is where I come to work now. And I'm writing. All I'm doing is writing silly cartoons and making jokes all day. And it's like, I felt like it was like, oh, this is like the guys at Warner Brothers, you know, when they were first making those cartoons. It's like a brand new freaking medium. And this is going to be my life. I didn't even have to go on a job interview for this. They just hired me. <laughs> and of course, then a year later, that was done. And. But what it did was a bunch of my friends moved to L.A. around that time. A bunch of my fellow comedian friends, and uh, they were all like, and they all, every time I'd come to visit or do a show, they were like, well, so when are you moving here? And I finally said to my next girlfriend, now my wife, like, I think I gotta, I think I gotta mm -hmm. do this. And I remember one time I was down here doing a show, and I had to buy, I didn't even have a cell phone at the time, I had to borrow a friend's cell phone, I'm calling her and we're talking, and she's like, I'll do it. I'll, you'll do what? I'll move to LA with you. And I don't know if I would have made the decision without her, without that, you know, her to give me the backbone to do it. And so we did it. We packed up and moved to LA and was like, and struggled because, you know, I didn't really know anybody. And I'd, I'd like to shift the focus less on the, the um, unless it pertains to the your emotional inner okay. life and your depression. Um, I, I'd like to focus on your your inner life through over the last fifteen years and and what the bottom was like emotionally. What give me some snapshots of um, your struggles at their at their worst. At their absolute freaking worst. Um, yeah, I just, I mean, I I have these like... Or is that's it just what they a ground, are. groundhog day of a gray blanket? <laughs> you know, for me, that's, that's what a lot of it is, is just a groundhog day of every day feels gray. I... Smiling when I'm depressed around other people feels like benching 500 pounds. Yes, absolutely. Like, you know, I don't care how I don't care what they say in that little saying about how many muscles it takes to smile. It feels like it takes all of them. Oh, when you feel that way. It is. I've mountain climbed, and that is easier than smiling at a party when I'm <laughs> when I'm depressed. And that's not and, an exaggeration. And I well, I think like for me too that so much of being that 
age and in a town like San Francisco and being single and all those other things revolves around having an active social life. And I don't think that I was ever a person that was entirely comfortable in crowded, play, noisy places anyway. Like, I don't think that I, you know, my anxiety was such that, like, going to a party, unless I was already drunk, was usually a, a traumatic experience. And I was the kind of person that, uh, and this went on until, again, the medication was like, I was the kind of person that if I had 25 good, solid, friendly interactions with people at a party, at an event, whatever, uh, if I had one negative one, could be some asshole who just said something shitty to me in the bathroom line. That was what I focused on for the next fucking three days. Like I was just, I would just be mired in like, you know, my anger and my self-hatred and my, why was that person such a dick? And what did I do? And like trying to, and just, I could pick that apart for three fucking days. So then does that train of thought go through your mind when you're invited somewhere that is that where the anxiety is based absolutely is- yes like that idea of like what is the thing what's going to be the thing that like you know that makes me miserable here like how am i going to you know i know that something's going to go right i think it is it's like catastrophizing is the word that i learned from my therapist wife and that's what i had a tendency to do was like you know and it's very subconscious i think but it was like I, you know, I could catastrophize any social event and I would think of it in terms of like, uh, you know, like going to a concert that I really wanted to see, you know, and paid a freaking hundred dollars for the ticket. I would still think about like, I wonder how long this is. Mm-hmm. Like when's it going to get over? stuck in? Yeah. Is our, is our parking spot going to be the worst po- parking spot there is? Exactly. What if somebody behind me is super loud or the person in front of me is seven feet tall? Yeah. Uh, or maybe what the if, person sitting next to me sings along off key to every song. What if I need to take a shit while I'm there? <laughs> you know, like, and then we're so far from home and I'm like, am I going to have to take a whole BART ride all the way home needing to shit? Is this worth it? <laughs> All of a sudden, you hate that band. You've ruined my life. I will never buy one of your albums. And those, yeah, and, I, and that what I think is a, a constant recurring theme was that feeling of like, and even again, even if this was a birthday party for friends where I knew I was going to know two thirds of the people there, I could come up with a reason that going was an absolutely miserable, wrong decision. For me, it's less the two thirds of the people I know. It's the one third I don't know. Absolutely, that's the that's the part that keeps me from going. I I get excited to go see six friends, all of whom I know. That I look forward to. Almost anything larger than that, and you throw in somebody I don't know, and uh, it's just dread. And is that still a situation? Yes, you still feel that because I feel like that has changed. That has changed dramatically enough that, uh, prime example, this past Saturday, uh, I had to go to my wife's cousin's daughter's seventh birthday party, and my wife couldn't go. So I had to take my son and go, "Eh, you know, they're all people I I know, they're family, they're my wife's family on this, Mm -hmm. you know, that we don't know super well. We've spent some time with them. I've certainly never gone and spent time with them without her. And when my wife told me, you know, asked me about it. I said, okay. Why would you go if she couldn't go? Um, because I think I knew that it was important to her that it's, we go that, and sort that of somebody show for the, yeah, that we go and sort of represent for the family and that we show up for them. Um, I would have divorced your wife right then and there. 
<laughs> well, you should have seen what happened when I tried to get out of it later. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I went and I was, if anything, I was actually more comfortable and more talkative than I would have been if she was there. Without her as the shield to hide behind, I went ahead and was like, well, well I've been around these people off and on enough times that I can just go up and make some conversation, make some small talk, and it'll be fine. And they'll be just glad that I was here. And that's how it was. And I was like, and there wasn't any, you know, nothing was odd, nothing was strange. And I walked out of there feeling like, you know, I had done something not just good for my wife, but for me, you know. And what I had to worry about that whole time was watching my kid who just sat by himself and wouldn't talk to anybody and interact with anybody and was like, and I'm like, oh, God, there's little mini me (laughs) in training. (laughs) And even though I'm trying to model different behavior for him. I know what his future is going to be like. <laughs> Do you think that that success you had at that party um, would have been possible without meds or without being sober? No. No. Uh, absolutely not. Because that's all, like, I've been able to cognitive, like, you know, I've had a little bit of cognitive therapy, but that little bit I had, uh, I've taken with me everywhere I've gone since. And with those things in combination, it's like, it's all about how I train my brain. And I have for years trained my brain to expect the worst out of social situations, out of, you know, uh, personal interactions, out of, you know, everything, you know, I could, I could do the same thing with this, you know, I could try to think of, I, I can think of a me maybe just a couple of years ago who would have tried to find every possible way I could at the last minute to go like, Paul, I don't know if tonight's the right night. I don't know if this is good. Mm-hmm. I, you know, cause I could have built up a lot of anxiety about, and I did have some, I mean, you know, naturally you're going to go and have a, you know, intimate conversation with somebody about real shit for, you know, I mean, I could get nervous if we were just going to talk comedy. Um, but it's more like it's like a, a, talking myself out of doing that. You know, don't be that guy. Because like when I first started performing again back in San Francisco, this is a great manifestation of my anxiety. Uh, and it would have been like I had done theater in high school and I had done comedy when I lived in Austin. And I had done, but like me and a friend were doing this sketch comedy thing. And it was all for the radio. And we started doing live shows. And literally every time we had a show, I was like, Please let the place be closed. Please let us have read the schedule wrong. Please let's get in a car accident on the way there. Please let the theater have caught fire or something on the like I was and it was this went on for like months. And I don't even really know what it was that finally got me. I think it was just getting enough laughs finally and going like, "Oh no, we're good. They like us." You know. I don't I'm, and then I got to a point where I was just like, "No, I just want to be out there doing it." You know. Even if it was like, I want to get out there and get it over with, but it was like, but the fear and anxiety and like, it was almost a surprise to me. Cause again, I had done this before. This wasn't all new to me, but I felt like a little frightened child. And, uh, and I think that probably more than I realized at the time was all mixed in with the bad way I generally felt about myself in those years. And the chemical depression. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And the using drugs and alcohol mm-hmm. to cope instead of just to be social yeah and like i said like one of those drugs was uh speed like methamphetamine and that's far and away the worst drug i think ever created by man like just what it does in terms of you know the evil 
that it does to your body on every level and what it does to your mind and how rapidly it does it. Oh, it, it just uh, – the, the paranoia uh, mm-hmm. of – And it turns people into literal psychotics and it can do it in a matter of months. And, you know, I always had just enough of a bad time with it that even mm-hmm. though I continued to do it, I never let it go quite that far. Mm-hmm. But I would stay up for like four days in a row. Wow. And then I'd wonder why – yeah, why do I feel like shit? <laughs> Come on, I, I had a good night's sleep last night. <laughs> On the fifth day, why do I feel like crap? Why am I so bummed out? Is there anything that we haven't uh, talked about? Um, God, it seems like there's plenty we haven't talked about. Do you feel like you've gotten a satisfactory answer from me about <laughs> you wanted these specifics? I, my... I feel like you've painted a picture, of, a picture of your depression and your anxiety and where you've gotten the relief uh, from. I, I, I feel like that unless you feel like there's something that, that you've left out. Um, no, I guess not. Do you want to do some, some fears and some loves? Hell yeah. <laughs> Bring them. Give me some fears. All right. Um, these I wrote down because it was like an assignment. I loved it. Um, I fear the heedless wrath of my sister during the holidays. What does heedless mean? <laughs> Uh, relentless. Oh, okay. Unceasing. Okay. Um, do you, and I can get more specific about sure. why I fear this. Um, and I just never let my sister listen to this. Um, <laughs> you but, said that uh, she's an untreated addict or she's she sober, but she's, she she's, she's not, not, she's not sober. I mean, she still drinks. Oh, okay. But she, what she doesn't do anymore is, you know, mainline methamphetamine. And it's been years since she has, but she has a lot of stuff yeah. and she could seriously use all kinds of therapy and recovery mm. and self-examination, but uh, the level of denial there would, I think even your jaw would be on the floor if you got to hear her level of, and for some reason she, in the past several years, she's become increasingly angry at my parents, particularly my mother, largely because they're aging and, <laughs> and they don't do all the things they used to do because it turns out 80 year olds don't do all the things they used to do. And, uh, she really just never stops being pissed at my mom. And when she comes home for the holidays, she takes over their house. Like she brings her three dogs. She, uh, the, the guest room she stays in has its own bathroom while seven of us share the other. Um, <laughs> and you cannot say any, like if I said anything, like I'm saying to you right now to her, she would be just instantly furious. Like, and I, and much less will get her instantly furious. And I, I, I love her to death and she is a sweet, generous, caring person in so many ways, but there is a strong, I don't know if sociopath is the right mm-hmm. word, but there is a extremely damaged, difficult person that, and she just makes life hell on my mom. Mm-hmm. And my mom's got her stuff. My mom drives me nuts too, but I felt like I spent Christmas acting as a buffer. Oh, and just and and really ended up that we all had a really nice time because I think I kept things from boiling over to the point that like it ever got ugly. Mm. So that and that was stressful at times, but I was like, but I felt like I was serving a purpose. I was being of service, so, yeah. <laughs> so it felt kind of good. Give me another one. All right. Um, I don't fear the total collapse of society so much as I fear my complete inability to function in it. I will likely put a bullet in my mouth as soon as Netflix goes offline. <laughs> I I can't disagree. <laughs> it sounds a bit dramatic, 
but uh but i know that i would be I, seriously like i watch you know you watch the walking dead or any of those things it's like i am not going to be that awesome capable guy oh, running no. around stamming zombies in the head i'm going to be dead within the first few hours i <laughs> often picture uh breaking down as i'm trying to set the tent up in our backyard that's i don't know why i'm in a tent in my backyard but that's where i i, I fall to my knees and say i can't do this and i've done that on camping trips so i can imagine how i'd be yeah. at the pressure of a collapsing yeah. <laughs> give me another one i need creature comforts um i fear becoming so old that i'm only made of fear mm, that's a good one and uh, again, I think that might relate to having spent time with my parents and, the, you know, that my mom in particular is so mortality obsessed at this point, which is understandable. But it's also, you know, you know, as people in recovery, we know it's like so much of how you set your mindset determines, you know, how you live your life and how mm -hmm. you feel from moment to moment, day to day. And I think, you know, you know, are you going to just think about death until you're dead <laughs> and then <laughs> and then, seem like and then the moment you realize that you wasted that time go oops <laughs> clutch your heart and fart <laughs> give me another one um let's see i fear that everything i'm doing in my life ultimately amounts to nothing in the great existential scheme of things no matter how insignificant how, no matter how significant it seems to me and yet i also fear that i'm not doing enough <laughs> so what the hell is that I totally relate to that one. Give me uh, give me some loves. Um, I love Captain America, who is my higher power, and yet I'm not a patriot in an extreme sense of the word. Do you, do you <laughs> like the uh, recent Captain America movies? Oh, very much. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Love. Okay. Love, especially the last one. What do you think it's about Captain America that you connect to emotionally? I've actually written about this, uh, blogged about it. Um, it's because, and, and it was one of those things that I had to pick a higher power, and Captain America, like, reading it and all this other stuff was kind of tied into the time that I got clean, but I had this realization that because the mistaken view of Captain America is that he is this super patriot, everything for America, you know, might makes right kind of guy, and he's not. What he is is the guy who represents America's aspirational self you know, the best of what we possibly could be if we actually lived up to the ideals we supposedly value. And I think for me, it's, that's, you know, that's what my higher power should be is my aspirational self. If I mm. was the best me I could possibly be, you know, then, you know, that's a guy worth looking up to. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, I love the look on my kid's face when he's practicing violin. Oh, that's sweet. Um, it's like seeing him take something that seriously and like approach it with genuine interest and care that's all on his own, you know, that's like self-motivated to a degree. I love it. Do you love the look on his face when you scream, play something good? God damn it. <laughs> I love being able to create that kind of terror in him. Yeah. But... <laughs> that's such a pure feeling of power. <laughs> Actually, he would just laugh in my face if yeah. I did that. That's awesome. I, I trained him both well and horribly. Um, let's see. 
I love pretending to believe that other belief systems are valid just to keep other people from feeling bad about their poor life choices when I secretly know that I'm pretty much on the right side of history on just about everything. That is fantastic. That is fantastic. And I love when my wife and I manage to land on the same page and stay there for at least a week. That is nice. That's that's a really, really important one in a committed relationship. It's, Yeah. And I love a lot of the more sordid, mundane, pleasant, heartbreaking, and ridiculous experiences of my life that I absolutely did not appreciate while living through them. That would be a great summation of all of that time in San Francisco, in fact, which I look at back on very fondly, even though when I talk about it in the specifics, there was so much depression and so much unhappiness. And But I also have this tendency, and I don't know if you do this as a ex-user, and but I still romanticize things about my drug using past. Oh yeah. That, you know, like, like I think there's something badass when I'm able to offhandedly say that I smoked speed out of a broken light bulb because we didn't have any glass pipes and none of us wanted to leave the house. <laughs> Did you really smoke speed out of a broken light bulb? Out of a bunch of broken light bulbs. <laughs> oh my we used them all, God. I think. <laughs> and it's sick to me that I can romanticize that, but I also think that that is part of, A, it's part of my addict brain, and it's also part of my writer brain, you know, to be like, you know, that's a fascinating detail of human experience. That that is, that is awfulsome. That is, I think what you <laughs> described in that last one is uh, the, the alchemizing awful to awfulsome. You know, or awful to awesome, uh, which is at the at the heart of of those. I would say it, yeah, it encapsulates awfulsome for sure because it yeah. will never not be awful. But I have, in my mind, allowed it to be awesome. You know. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Stephen, thank you so much for coming and, and and sharing your life. And if if people want to um, follow you, get a hold of you, do you have a Twitter uh, um, handle? My Twitter handle is. Uh, at st brophy okay and brophy is b-r-o-p-h-y like trophy with a b and uh st brophy.com is my blog um and uh you can find me on goodreads i got a couple books and uh yeah Cool. Well, when we uh, post your episode, uh, we'll have you send me the links to the books that uh, you want available and All right. uh, people to, to check out. And we'll Absolutely. put those on our website. Awesome. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. Many, many thanks to uh, to Stephen. Uh, we'll put all uh, all of those links for you to check out on the website. Uh, normally, if, if we mention something uh, that you can find on the internet here on the podcast, uh, if I remember, I try to uh, put the link on the on the website. Um, let's give some love to our sponsors. I've been eating Blue Apron for probably the last three weeks, and I got to tell you, it is it has really been a uh, revelation. As I as I've shared on uh, previous episodes, uh, talking about Blue Apron, I kept hearing about it from my friends about how they're doing Blue Apron, and you know, couples are cooking together and they love it, and everything gets shipped to you, and the recipes on a, you know, a nice card stock that's that's colored, and uh, th they were right. I've made some of the most amazing meals. Um, this week, I made uh, chicken with buttermilk biscuits, and holy shit. So good. Uh, you got to try Blue Apron. It's 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 the real deal. 
It's less than $10 per person. Um, their ingredients are fresh. They're not filled with chemicals. Um, they talk with, um, they have relationships with local growers. Um, their beef is humanely raised. Uh, I mean, I could go, I could go on and on, but you gotta, you gotta check it out. It's, it's really cool. So, um, some of the meals that are, uh, because their, their meals are constantly changing. Um, uh, this week, I believe they have, uh, actually, this is in August, spiced pork burgers with goat cheese and cucumber corn salad. Uh, another one is summer vegetable and quinoa bowl with fairy tale eggplants, shishito peppers, and corn. I've never heard of fairy tale eggplants, um, but I do follow him on Twitter. Uh, and another one is uh, chicken tinga tacos with summer squash and tomato salsa. Now, one of the things I love, too, is you wind up cooking things that you would never venture to try. And uh, you'll be amazed because you'll, you'll pull them off and you get to taste new new things. So uh, check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash mental. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so do not wait. That's blueapron.com slash mental. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Want to also give some love to uh, our, our friends at Squarespace. They, uh, I say it all the time, but they have been the best supporter of podcasts from the beginning. They have far and away been the best supporter of this podcast, and I love their product. If you are building a website, a landing page, a gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, it is all included with your Squarespace website. It's a super intuitive process. Uh, they have templates. It's drag and drop. You don't have to know how to code. Um, it's just awesome. It's just awesome. Uh, they have 24-7 support, um, a free custom domain name. If you sign up for a year, uh, you'll you'll uh, receive one. And uh, I, I just can't say enough good stuff. If you want to check out the site that I uh, put up, I made a, a site called uh, the address is uh, paul-gilmartin.squarespace.com. And uh, I put up pic- my favorite pictures of dogs that I've taken and little sound uh, music snippets that I did. And it took me like two hours to put the whole thing together. And I couldn't have been happier with it. And I've recommended it to friends, and they've used it, and they love it. So um, go check it out. Uh, go to squarespace.com and enter offer code MENTAL to get 10% off your first purchase. Thank you so much, Squarespace. Let us get to some surveys. But actually, before that, let me remind you that there's a couple of different ways to support the podcast, if you feel, if you feel like it. No pressure. Uh, you can go to our website, metalpod.com. And uh, you can make a one-time PayPal donation, or my favorite, become a monthly donor. And you can do it for as little as five bucks a month, and it makes a world of difference. Um, because if everybody chips in just a little bit, uh, the podcast has a sound uh, financial footing, and we can do all the stuff we want to do, which we're not able to do, um, frankly. So it would be great if you can do that. If you can't, you can support us non-financially. Go to iTunes, write something nice about us. Give us a good rating. That boosts our ranking, and then that brings more people uh, to the show. Um, you can also, oh, another financial way is if you're going to buy something Amazon, enter through uh, the 
Amazon logo on our homepage, and then Amazon will give us a little bit of money, and it doesn't make the price of what you're buying any more expensive. And uh, here's a really important non-financial way that you can help the podcast. You can spread uh, the word through social media, um, especially tweeting, retweeting, uh, retweeting, um, posting stuff on Tumblr, Instagram, Facebook, um, all of that stuff helps. All right. And for those of you that uh, have sent me emails and asked me how uh, my mood has been since I started the Adderall, really good. Uh, I have not had a single day yet where I've been fighting the urge to go back to bed. Um, when I wake up in the morning, I don't feel uh, like if there's a thousand pound weight on my chest. Conversing is still uh, easy and, um, you know, easy since I since I got on it. Uh, conversing was a little bit, uh, could be a struggle before then. And overall, just just really great. So I couldn't, it's been a game changer for me and I couldn't be happier. This is an email that I got um, from Alex and she had heard on an episode that, that we'd done. It was filled out by a listener named Jaded Ivy on episode 288 and uh, she talked about the metal toll um, after having abortions, three abortions in a two-year period. And so Alex wrote in, uh, to give me some links to uh, places that can help that person process all those emotions. And uh, I'll, I'll put these links on the website, uh, but just to name them, the One in Three campaign, which is one in three uh, campaign.org, and it's uh, they're both numbers, one and three. Uh, backline, uh, and that's yourbackline.org. And then, of course, uh, Planned Parenthood, which uh, a lot of people know, and that is PlannedParenthood.org. Uh, thank you so much for, for that, Alex. Uh, this is Struggle in a Sentence, filled out by Michael. And he writes about uh, having bipolar disorder, uh, especially when he's in mania. He writes, I'm 200 steps ahead. Why are you calling me crazy? Waterproof Eyeliner writes about her love addiction. I wish I was addicted to something more accessible to me. That is profound. And that is so, so dead on about the, it's like, uh, you know, a love addict trying to find love is like trying to grab fog with a catcher's mitt. Uh, about being dyslexic. She writes, being dyslexic is the worst because it's very, Name is something I have to spell check 17 times. And she misspelled dyslexic there, but I think that was intentional. About living with an abuser. Uh, about my stepfather. I hate that the voice in my head that tells me I'm worthless isn't even my own. It's still yours. And then this is a snapshot from her life. Part of filling this out is a baby step to looking for a new therapist. I've wanted to fill one out for a long time and hope it will motivate me to seek out more help. I'm just coming to terms with the fact a boyfriend years ago sexually abused me. Maybe when I feel ready, um, I'm right, I'll write that out in a longer survey. Basically, I can still feel his hands on my skin at times and it makes me wish I could peel myself like a mandarin orange. I feel I will never be good enough that the only people who love me will always be like him or my other abuses 
other abusers in my life. My stepdad ran an avid campaign against my self-esteem during the 10 years I had to live with him. One day I was his best friend, the next I was worse than dirt if he he noticed the baseboards in the kitchen had stains on them. for example. He repeatedly gaslit me. One day, when I was 15, he told me he had inappropriate feelings for me. I was so scared because if he had gone farther, I was so scared because if he had gone farther with it, I would not have been able to stop him. Later, when managed to try and... There's a lot of, uh, I think, of uh, spell check, autocorrect, uh, going haywire in this one. Later, when I managed to try and say it was wrong, or I don't know, diffuse the situation, he laughed at me and said he was joking. He never did it again, but I lived in fear of that every day until I could move out. Sorry, maybe I should have chosen a longer form survey. Um, it That is... It's telling your child that you have inappropriate feelings for them. And then when they express how uncomfortable you pass it off as a joke. I mean, that's that's sadistic. Uh, and she would like to have more episodes about uh, borderline personality disorder, um, bisexual women, people with dyslexia, or other learning disabilities. Um, go to the website and type any of those keywords in on our little search box and see what see what comes up and you can also go to the forum and post that question um probably better than asking a guy who destroyed his brain with weed to remember something this is filled out by hold on sip of grain tea this is filled out by a woman who calls herself flawlessly flawed she is bisexual in her 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. She writes, an evangelist in the church we attended in my youth was like a mother to me. I would spend the night at her house, took photos with the family, go on vacations with them, and spend holidays with them. Her husband worked night shift. When he would leave, she would call me into their room. We would talk, watch a movie, just hang out. One night during this, quote, hangout time, she asked if I had ever masturbated. I'd never heard the term. She told me to lay on my stomach. She laid on me and demonstrated what masturbation was. I was 16. She was 36. I was a virgin and was very green when it came to sex. I felt so guilty because I was old enough to know better. No, not at 16. Not at 16. Um... And and I hate that I hate that phrase should have known better because even adults will freeze in situations where somebody uh, has tipped the balance of power, and it doesn't matter what age that other pe- person knows when they are abusing their power. Anyway, continuing, uh, she was married with three daughters and a preacher. I was raised in church, so I knew God was not pleased with me, but she loved me. Surely she wouldn't do anything to hurt me. I told her how confused I felt. She prayed with me and said the love we had was special. The bond between us grew. We became more and more intimate. This continued until I was 19 uh, 19 and four months old. I'm 34 now, and that period of my life still haunts me. Well, I, I hope you know when you wrote that 
when you write The Love We Had Was Special, that that was really Stockholm Syndrome or whatever you want to call it. Um, she took advantage of the fact that you were looking for somebody in your life to see you and love you. And she exploited that sadistically and brilliantly. Um, ever been emotionally abused? It was drilled into my head that I would be a failure and never amount to anything. My mom would make it clear she loved my sister's father's, but never loved mine, so I was treated different. I, it, it is uncanny how often people who are taken advantage of sexually were raised in environments that were either abusive or emotionally invalidating. It, it, it's almost without fail. Um, my mother would make it clear she loved my sister's father. Oh, okay, I read that. My feelings don't matter. My little sister is more important. After hearing these things and so much more as a child, it's hard to know my worth and value as an adult. Any positive experiences with the abusers? My emotional abuse happened throughout my childhood and adolescence. It was from little sister's father and also my mother. I struggled in my relationship with my mom. She was supposed to protect me. I love her because she's my mother. Every moment was not bad. Uh, she is the biggest trigger for me. I would love to banish the phrase, I love, I love them because they are my blank. There is more fucked up dysfunction and cycle of abuse continuing in the world because of that phrase. Um, and just because there's good moments doesn't mean that somebody isn't abusive and toxic. It's about what we feel, not a grade we're going to give that person on being a parent. Um, it's not about justice. It's not about prosecution. It's about do you feel safe? Do you want to be around that person? If not, then listen to that and advocate for yourself. Darkest Secrets. Uh, when I was in my early 20s, I would have sex just to feel close to someone. And I hope you realize that that is textbook for somebody who has been through um, what you've been through, especially with that, um, that woman. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I don't have sexual fantasies. Again, really common. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? And I've mentioned this many times on the podcast, but people who have been uh, sexually traumatized tend to have sexuality uh, and uh, social lives that are, e that are black or white. There is almost no in between. You're either, you know, hypersexual or asexual. Uh, sometimes going back and forth between the two, but uh, or socially very outgoing um, or completely withdrawn. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel dumb. I hate admitting these things happened to me. I hate how they have made me the emotionally unstable, codependent adult I am today. Well, here is the, the good news. You can recover. People do. You can heal. And then you can be an inspiration to somebody else. And all that stuff doesn't have to be for naught. And I, I, that's probably not what you want to hear right now. But um, just sending you some love, man. Sending you some love. Puppy Love writes about 
her OCD. It's like carefully walking down the center of an aisle in the shopping, uh, in the shopping center, desperately trying not to bump into anything so I don't have to go back and touch it, alternating between hands eight times, all while distracted by counting my steps and the tiles on the floor and ceiling and counting the people walking past me. God, that sounds exhausting. Um, about having uh, possibly undiagnosed borderline personality, lying in bed next to the person I love and poking and prodding until we're in a full-blown fight and feeling disgustingly satisfied because this means that at least they care enough to be upset. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That's really insightful. Snapshot from her life. When I change the channel on the car radio, I have to touch every single button on the dashboard at least two times, sometimes four, sometimes more, every time. Thank you for that. Uh, I love this name. The weird guy rocking in the corner. Um, writes about his dysthymia. Feeling like I, quote, fell off the horse, but instead of getting back on it, my foot got caught in the stirrup and it's been dragging me along behind it. About uh, being on the autism spectrum, being dropped on a distant planet where everyone speaks a language that sounds identical to yours but is just different enough to cause constant misunderstandings. Snapshot from his life, sitting in my therapist's office and telling him that I'm fine when really I want to lay down and die. But telling him that I'm fine is just easier because I can't come up with the words to express that I'm in pain. That's so true. That is so true for so many of us. It is so hard to put words to things that we've stuffed down. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Little Butterfly. And uh, she's straight in her 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, but she has been uh, emotionally abused, never been physically abused. Throughout my adolescence, my mother was obsessed with my weight. When I was 14, she told me my weight had, quote, gotten out of hand, and, quote, the whole neighborhood is talking about it. Jesus Christ. Just what every emotional, insecure 14-year-old girl wants to hear. Around that same time, I wanted to quit playing soccer. Her only response was, well, you're going to need to find something else to do so you don't gain weight. She forced me to go on multiple diets as a teenager. When my family would go out to restaurants, she'd tell the waiters that I could only get a salad because I was on a diet. It would always mortify me. Every time I told her it bothered me when she would say things like that, she acted as if I was being completely absurd and ridiculous. God, what a narcissist she is with the mother. Uh, any... Anytime I would lose weight, my mother would give me compliments on my progress. It only filled me with rage. I hated that it made her happy. It meant she didn't have to be embarrassed by her, quote, fat daughter anymore. When I was 17, I'd finally had enough. I told her I never wanted her to make a comment about my weight ever again. She did what she always did. She flipped the situation. She made herself out to be the victim, saying that she was only concerned for my health. She'd say things like, well, I guess I'm just a, a terrible mother then, huh? She had a way of making me feel guilty for expressing my feelings. Textbook emotional abuser. She always loves to put me down. Nothing I ever did was right. There are so many other horrible things my mother said and did, things not pertaining to my weight, but I don't want this to take up too much of your time. So maybe I'll save those stories for another day. 
About a year ago, I found a photo taken of me for choir when I was 14. I immediately started crying. Why? Because the first thing I noticed and thought was, I wasn't fat back then. I was a perfectly healthy 14-year-old girl. I went through all of that bullshit for nothing. I have horrible body issues now for nothing. I've developed horrible depression that I still struggle with to this day for nothing. I was not fat. God, your mother is such a sick, sick woman. And I'm sure... I'm sure her mom didn't see her and tried to mold her into an extension of her ego or her dad. (sighs) Any positive experiences? Yes, my mother could be really awesome. She would have long periods of time when she was happy and wouldn't put me down. She could be really fun and loving, which is hard because I want to hate her so much, but she's my mom. I love her. I wish I didn't, but I do. Again, I would say, ask yourself, do you feel safe and do you want to be around her? And those should be the two most important questions. And does she respect your boundaries? I mean, my God, you were trying to set boundaries as a child and she steamrolled them. But you know what's fucked is kids kids can't set boundaries really because, well, it's hard for them to set boundaries because they can't enforce them. Were you going to you know, get your little hobo stick and march down to the forest to live? Uh, this, just one's, this, this one's breaking my heart. Darkest thoughts. I'm so depressed. I think about suicide a lot. I feel guilty, though, at the thought of hurting others around me if I were to take my own life. I could never do that. But I find myself wishing and hoping some freak accident would kill me or that I would develop some type of aggressive illness that would kill me so I don't have to do it myself. It's sick and gross. I know. So many of us relate to that. So many of us relate to that. You are so not alone with this. I guarantee you right now, A third of the audience has experienced a version of this and a version of what you're dealing with as a result. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I don't really have any sexual fantasies. The thought of being intimate makes me really depressed. I'm in my 20s. I'm a virgin. Never been on a date. Never been kissed. I've never even held hands with a guy. Every time the opportunity presents itself, I push the guy away before anything can happen. I'm afraid he will be repulsed and disgusted by my body. I feel like I'm doing every guy a favor and saving them from my gross, fat body. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Would it kill you asshats to stop thinking about yourselves for one minute and ask if I'm okay for once because I'm not okay, just FYI. I think a support group would be so beneficial to you because you are suffering in silence and by yourself. And, well, have you shared these things with others? Yes, with my best friend. She's super supportive and I'm so grateful to have her in my life. I think it would be even more awesome to add more people to that support group, especially people who've experienced what you've experienced. And there are a ton of people 
who have, have experienced that. How do you feel after writing these things down? The same, emotionally exhausted and defeated. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Your feelings are valid. You are beautiful no matter what. Don't let anyone tell you different, not even yourself. That's one of the most moving surveys I've ever read. You know, so many of these surveys I, I read, the child can't find the words to even express what it is that they're feeling, but you did, and she still steamrolled you, and then made it about her, and became the martyr, and then you get the, on top of that, the mom who expresses, quote-unquote, love just enough that it really fucks you up. That it really fucks you up. You'd probably been better off if she had, if she had never been nice to you. I don't know. I'm not a therapist, but... I uh, I did do a cable TV show in the early 90s called Comedy on the Road, and I uh, whipped out some stand-up that was really tired, not very insightful, and delivered in a way that could be called ham-fisted. So I think I know what I'm talking about. This is an awful moment filled out by Bush Kitty, and she writes... When I turned 16 years old, and it's fitting, too, that this one is being read right after that one. When I turned 16 years old, I decided to have a big, sweet 16 pool party at my friend's house. All of my friends came, and it turned, and it was a great turnout. On the flip side, my depression had been worsening, and I hadn't really talked about it with anyone at this point. That night after the party was over, I spent the night there with my friend, and we stayed up late in bed talking. One topic led to another, and I began trying to open up about all the issues going on in my head because I needed support, and I knew vocalizing my feelings would be good for me. I went on for a few minutes, and after I finished, we sat there in silence for about 10 seconds. She finally said, don't take this the wrong way, but you've gained a lot of weight recently. I said, okay, and went to sleep. And this was last year that this happened. She's 17. I know I've probably been giving out advice too much uh, on the podcast, but get rid of that fucking friend. Maybe she'll become a deeper person later in life, but you deserve better because that is fucked. <sighs> Jesus. <coughs> Ivy. Ivy thinks she's named Jesus. I, I can't believe I've never mentioned that on the podcast. She has a God complex. This is filled out. This is a struggle in a sentence. And Double double Depresso uh, writes about her depression. Like, everyone around me is spending the day at Disneyland, and I have to spend it at San Quentin. That is a good one. Snapshot from her life. I throw up every morning before I go to work. Once I get there, I sit at my desk all day, feeling sick to my stomach about having to be there. 
Nothing particular is happening. It's just a feeling of being trapped with no way out. Then my boss tells me that he appreciates the positivity I bring to the group. I guess after 25 years of hiding my feelings, I've gotten pretty good at it. And then she, uh, any comments to make the podcast better? Tell us the latest about your situation with your mom. Uh, Where are you with everything? And um, I'm comfortable in the decision that I made to um, cut contact uh, with my mom. And it feels like the internal struggle that I had has finally subsided. And I really feel like I've um, healed from the stuff that was tearing tearing me up. Um, The first two and a half years... Uh, maybe even three years of after I gave weight to the things that she had done to me um, was confusing, painful. Um, I thought I was never going to get out of it. uh, And I feel like I'm on the other side of it. So thank you for asking. And yeah, occasionally something will come up and it'll remind me of a nice moment that we had, but I have to remember, um, that's not what you base a relationship on. You base it on, do you feel safe around that person? And I don't feel safe around her. <laughs> uh, this guy calls himself Herbert isn't his butthole. And about his anxiety, he writes, I pick up the phone to call for a therapist, and after punching in the number, delete it. Repeat five times. I punch in my parents' number hesitate, then resign myself to going back to bed. Repeat daily. Snapshot from his life. It's the end of the first semester of college and I'm standing near the ledge on the roof of my dorm. I realize if I jump without leaving my mom a note, she'll blame herself for the rest of her life. I never got around to writing the note, so I guess all those years of practice and procrastination really paid off. Oh... Well, we're we're glad. We're glad that you're here. And I'm trying to think of some some way to help you get the courage up to call a therapist. And I don't know I don't know what to suggest. Maybe post in the forum and post what city you live in, and then maybe from that that someone from that city can find a therapist and have the therapist call you. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting in over my head here trying to fix, but it just seems like you're so close because there's that will, but there's also the fear and the anxiety. And you know what? If you're listening to this, uh, uh, Herbert is in his butthole. If you're listening to this, listen, please listen through the rest of this episode because there is a listener email at the end that has your identical situation. And they decided to try it. This is an awful some moment filled out by fighting off my Stepford double. 
And she writes, I held the phone at arm's length, but I could still hear my mom raging loud and clear. She was furious that I wouldn't give her money to cover her bills from her most recent arrest. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Just right there. My mom was furious that I wouldn't give her money to cover her most re- not her arrest, her most recent arrest. That's a t-shirt. Uh, it's long, but uh, when the tirade was over, I told her I needed a break from her and I would talk to her in three months. I hung up and went over to my kitchen cupboard and grabbed the cooking sherry, the only booze I had in the house. I was about to drink it, but then I said out loud, Mom, you drove me to drink in the past, but that's done. You took my childhood, but you can't have my sobriety. The sherry went into the clam linguine, and my whole family enjoyed their dinner. Awesome. Awesome. I was just telling a friend at my support group tonight, the first time I set a boundary with my mom, I was in my 20s. And one of the things that she used to do was when I wouldn't agree with her about something or she wouldn't get her way, sometimes she would cry. And I would think I was a bad son if I didn't give in. And my therapist said, well, what would happen if you just let her cry? And it never occurred to me that it might not be the end of the world. So when one of those instances came up again, uh, we were on the phone and I said, uh, you can continue crying, but uh, I'm not going to change my stance. And it was like a light switch went off and she stopped crying. And I went, oh my God, this has been a tool that she's been using on me. And when I hung up the phone, I felt like I was nine feet tall and made of helium. It was profound this is a shame and secret survey filled out by Alexander Hamilton he is gay Uh, he's a teenager he was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment he's never been sexually abused he's not sure if he's been physically or emotionally abused Um, darkest thoughts rape and murder fantasies, darkest secrets. I've stolen dirty underwear and stuck flashlights, brushes, and a pull-up bar into my ass. I'm going to assume that when you put the pull-up bar into your ass, nobody was still doing chin-ups. Because if you did manage to do that, you should go on America's Got Talent. You know, if you wanted to get everybody off of Facebook, make them post right by their picture, all the things that they've put in their cavities. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, you're, you're, you are not alone, buddy. You are not alone. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, raping a straight guy. It's exhilarating and would be my greatest uh, sexual experience. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I don't want to date you. I just honestly want to fuck. What, if anything, do you wish for? Invisibility, uh, with a wink, or lots of money. Have you shared these things with others? Of course not. How do you feel after writing these things down? Not much different. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? How do you cope with these thoughts? And that is a great question, and I think it's something that... um, 
a, a therapist or a trusted friend would be uh, good to to talk to um, because people have dark fantasies like you do. Um, the only question is, is it something that you are moving towards acting out in real life? If so, then it's incredibly important that you get help. But if it doesn't feel like it's moving towards that, uh, because people in my opinion, don't go from, yeah, I've been thinking about this to, you know, the next day they do the crazy thing. It's usually incremental steps. And so if you find yourself um, taking incremental steps towards that, that should be an alarm bell and and go get help. But if you just keep these as thoughts, you know, you could, if you found a a willing partner that you could do uh, role-playing, giving and taking away power, that could be really fun and erotic. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself Kitten Tits. Love it. And uh, he deals with depression, anxiety, love addiction, and PTSD. And he writes, um, I reach out to people over and over and try to connect and get coldness in return. Or I get ignored completely. Uh, I have I have plenty of open-ended emails in which I've got no replies. My phone never rings and no one seems to give a shit. I'm not perfect, but I'm caring and thoughtful, but see others far less kind get far more contact and warmth from others. Uh, Beginning to not want to bother anymore. There are no support groups around here except AA and NA, and that's not my thing. Besides, a standard adult friendship shouldn't be that damn hard to initiate and maintain. I think I'm a good guy, but no one else seems to give a fuck. It's bothering me so much lately, I find it hard to keep going. Just needed to vent because I feel so alone. It's killing me. And he had described earlier um, uh, about... uh, Well, let me just read what he... I should just write at the top. Uh, Hearing some surveys of people turning themselves inside out to help others turning themselves inside out to stay in a bad relationship, turning themselves inside out to show someone who couldn't give two shits about them that they care. Meanwhile, I reach out to people over and over and over, and that's where I started reading it. Um, there is, uh, There may be codependency uh, support groups, uh, because a lot of times if there is one for alcoholism or addiction, there is usually one around there, though probably not as uh, popular as the addiction ones, but for uh, codependency people. And if there aren't, I've heard great things about a website uh, called In The Rooms. So you might check that out because they have online uh, meetings. And it it can really, it can really help. It can really help because you don't need to stay in that place that you are and you shouldn't. Senora Facepalm writes about her codependency. I want my partner to change because I don't want to leave her. But she won't change and I won't leave. Why won't she change? Why? Fantastic. Um, about being an abuser. And, and her, uh, her partner is incredibly abusive. And about her being an abuser herself, she writes, I abuse back with verbal put-downs. And the whole time, I know it's passive-aggressive and I cannot stop. It feels good to jab back. It's the one thing I have, a sharp tongue. 
about her anger issues. I have rage living so deep inside of me because of the awful ways I have allowed myself to be treated. I'm angry at my abuse and I'm angry, I think she meant abuser, and I'm angry at myself. I am ashamed of how my desperate need for love and acceptance has been the cornerstone of most of my misery. Uh, I feel like I don't even know how to talk to people anymore. Like, no matter what I say, it it's the scared mouse or the sarcastic jackass. Um, that would make a great tar- cartoon, by the way. Scared mouse and sarcastic jackass. Come on, get up on my back. Uh, I'll give you a ride. I'm too afraid. I don't know. I, I probably should have had a joke worked out before I fucking stepped into, oh, I so want to rewind. I hate myself to my very core and I encourage the rest of you to join in and show me my place in the world by casting me to the bowels of hell that is not an overreaction that is how monumental my mistake was continuing my social anxiety has been so bad that I stutter in meetings with my staff at work I often cannot get the courage to call my people out on their disrespectful disrespectful behavior towards me and I feel worthless, ugly, scared and just overall disgusting. Oh. Sending you some love. Um, uh, let me read the highlight from uh, or a snapshot from her, her life. Being mocked by my partner and her daughter to the point where I spend most of my time in a room upstairs while they are awake. I stop by a salad bar on the way home and eat in the car, come home and go upstairs and hope they aren't home so I cannot be seen. If they are home, I say hi and walk past them really fast so I can get to my safe place. This is fucking miserable and lonely as hell. I'm so addicted to love that I just cling to any positive thing so I can justify staying in this filthy house with these soul-sucking women realizing it's my desperation and lack of self-respect that allows this all to play out, being ashamed that I didn't realize I deserve respect. A long time ago, I sold myself to the lowest bidder over and over again. And here's another thing that I want, and I'm so sorry that you're stuck in this space. Here's another another thing to consider, though, that there is a, a sick payoff to people that stay in abusive relationships and it's that they get to experience the adrenaline rush of anger and indignation. And it's hard, it is hard for the person stuck in that relationship to see that. But oftentimes, the person who is abusing, that's all that they see. And so, what you both wind up doing is only seeing the part of each other that fuels the sick part in yourself. And that's not to say that your your uh, partner is not incredibly abusive and you should get the fuck out of there. But um, it's it's complicated is, is, is what I'm what I'm trying to say. Um, it occurred to me one day that I was getting high on feeling indignant about something. And I realized that, wow, I use this to medicate. When I'm sad, I like to find somebody to rail about, some politician to rail about and post on Facebook. Maybe it's just me. This is a shame and secrets uh, survey filled out by Mindful Mel. 
and she is straight in her 30s, raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, she's never been sexually abused. Um, she had a mother who uh, was... Uh, I'm, I'm not going to read all the stuff about the physical or emotional abuse, but just suffice it to say uh, her mom was a nightmare and a sick woman. And any positive experiences uh, with the abusers? Uh, yes, I have a lot of very positive experiences with my mom, and she is a really good grandmother to my children. Although my one son is very sensitive like me, and she is quick to dismiss his, quote, fake tears and overreactions. I'm sorry, but those two sentences don't go together. She's a really good grandmother, and she dismisses his fake tears. That's not a good grandmother. That just isn't. She may do nice things for him, but a good grandmother doesn't call a child's tears fake. Uh, I'm constantly reminding her that in my house, we validate feelings. Good for you. I do blame my mom for my own mental illness because I feel like it was her actions that fucked me up. On the flip side, I know she has her own mental illness or illnesses, even if they are undiagnosed. So maybe she did the best she could. I mean, I'm in constant fear that I'm fucking up my own kids. So yes, my feelings about her are complicated. And again, I say it all the time. It doesn't matter what the culpability of that other person is. It's how it affects us and how we're going to process those feelings. Darkest thoughts. I love my children more than life itself, but sometimes I wish I never had them. They're, they are the only things that tie me to this earth. If I didn't have anyone that depended on me, I could finally stop fighting so hard to stay alive and I could give into the pain and just slip away without feeling guilty. Um, and I hope you don't ever say that to them or allude to that because a lot of parents will do that thinking they're complimenting their child and it is so incredibly damaging. Darkest secrets. On the outside, I seem very normal. I live in a middle-class neighborhood and work a nine-to-five corporate job. My kids are in every activity under the sun so they have the chance to greatly succeed in life. I would take exception to that sentence and I would say being in every activity, being in a ton of activities isn't as important as them feeling emotionally safe because you can have all the knowledge and skill in the world, but if you don't have emotional skills and if you haven't processed shit from childhood, it can paralyze you and it can keep you uh, not only stuck, but... Uh, in self-destruct mode. Uh, I'm involved in the community and everyone knows me as this happy, bubbly person, but I have borderline personality disorder, so as you can imagine, I am not the same person I project to others. I cut. A lot. I keep a knife in my bathroom and a razor blade in my car. I have tattoos to cover up some of the scars. I self-medicate with alcohol. I drink anywhere from one to two bottles of wine a night. When things have been really bad, I have mixed alcohol with my sleeping meds because I didn't give a shit if I woke up the next day or not. My husband and I have been together for 16 years, and every so often I get the urge to experiment sexually with someone else. Just the thought of someone unfamiliar is such a turn-on for me, but I would never cheat on my husband because if he ever left me, I would just straight up kill myself. So instead of cheating, I have experimented with women in front of him because let's be honest, what straight guy doesn't like to watch two women hooking up? 
One time when my husband and I went on vacation, I made out with and felt up a stripper in a hot tub. She had fantastic fake breasts. Another time I had a friend over for dinner and let her go down on me while my husband watched. I feel like I live the secret double life and it's absolutely exhausting that every minute of every day I have to think about how to exist, quote, normally. Um, first of all, I would say there is no normal. And um, the... Again, I, I, I hope that I don't come across as, as being hard on you, especially because you have borderline personality disorder, and I know rejection is like uh, white-hot fire. Um, so know that this is, th- this is coming from a place of wanting to help, and, and uh, hopefully you hear the, the compassion and what I'm trying to say. People can live successfully with borderline personality disorder, but if you're drinking one to two bottles of wine a night, it, it, it's impossible. There, there is no way that you can manage in those two illnesses at the same time. And, you know, you said, I love my children more than life itself. If you don't quit drinking, then that statement isn't true. Then you love self-medicating more than that you love them, or you're more afraid of getting help than you love them. And that's not, that is not a comment on you. That is a comment on the power of mental illness and addiction. And I guess what I'm trying to do is wake you up. Because you are not a bad person. You are, you are trying to cope with an incredibly complicated life, with a huge amount of stress, with really primitive tools. And you need to get, you need to put down the sledgehammer and the baseball bat and learn how to use sophisticated emotional tools. Um, but just because your your kids aren't saying, mommy, when you do this, it scares me, or mommy, it makes me sad when you drink, it is affecting them. Is it going to fuck them up? I don't know. Who Who knows? But the chances are, if you keep going down this, it absolutely, absolutely will. Um, but there is hope and there is help for alcoholism and for borderline personality disorder. Um, now, is, is it fair for me to say you're drinking one to two bottles of wine a night, you're an alcoholic? No, only you can decide whether or not you are an alcoholic, but I can tell you uh, that matches the criteria of alcoholic drinking. Um, sexual fantasies, I think we did that one. Um, what, if anything, do you wish for? I wish to God with all my heart and soul that I don't fuck up my children. I hope that they grow up to be happy, well-rounded, and stable human beings. Essentially, I hope they don't turn out anything like me. Then get help. Please get help. And for you, you deserve it. You deserve to feel safe in this world. You deserve to wake up in the morning and not feel dread and not feel terror and not feel the need to self-medicate. And you can. That, that's why your survey moved me so much is because I, I hear in that survey 
that you're a really well-intentioned person, but you are up against such powerful forces in your brain that you have to, you have to get help. Sending you some love. This is an awful moment filled out by getting out of bed in the morning purely for Herbert's butthole. <laughs> I thought I'd read this one before, but it, for some reason I must have skimmed over that. At some point, people using Herbert's butthole is going to become uh, tiresome and get on my nerves, but we're not there yet. And somebody, by the way, uh, on Twitter did a little mock-up of a t-shirt that uh, we might try to put out uh, involving Herbert's butthole. But I, I want it to be something that people would not be afraid to wear out in public. So we're still trying to figure out what the design would look like and what, what it would say. Um, anyway, uh, this is her awfulsome moment. I was spending an evening with one of my close friends and just like two very normal people, we were giving each other inspirations on what very kink-filled porn to Google. While we were doing this, we were typing all the keywords like extreme BDSM hentai, I think I'm pronouncing hentai correct, into our group chat. All was great and we were having a good laugh at the huge variety of Google results and then we realized that two other people were in the group chat that we hadn't noticed. As we both noticed, first there was a dead silence and both of our jaws dropped as we wondered how on earth we were going to explain that. We then both simultaneously burst out into laughter for about 10 minutes. My face still hurts from laughing and I don't have a clue how I'll explain it, but I won't, but I don't regret it for a second. That's fantastic. That is fantastic. And there's something so fucking freeing about owning your sexuality and owning your fantasies. Um, there, I, I, there's not a fantasy that I have that I haven't shared with somebody and laughed about. Um, and it's very calming to, to let that shame go. And um, yeah. Monster writes about her alcoholism and drug addiction. I hear the word coke and my heart jumps. I miss my best friend. I have a friend who used to smoke crack. And if somebody shared a story about smoking crack, he would have to run and take a shit because his body reacted that strongly to um, the euphoric recall of smoking crack. Uh, about being a sex crime victim, I'm not really a victim because obviously I'm making myself feel violated so I can say I am a victim so I can get attention. That is profound and that is, I don't know if I've met a survivor that hasn't said that thing. I think, let's put it this way, I think 90% of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of survivors I've met and talked to and surveys I've read, we all go through that and that is that's one of the ways that I know one of the biggest ways that I know that I've healed is the voice that tells me that is almost a whisper now whereas when I first confronted 
what had happened to me, it was all I could hear. Um, and then her other struggle, she writes, if I just keep buying things, maybe this hole will be filled. Oh, boy, do I know that feeling. Fucking. And then you get the credit card bill, and you're like, oh, my God. Oh, my God, what did I do? I'm already bored with this thing I bought, and now I have to pay for it. Uh, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by um, a woman who calls herself Feel Like a Pedophile. Uh, and this one uh, is a little graphic. Um, so uh, if you don't want to hear it, you might want to fast forward. Um, I think it's the last one we have that's... Yes, this is the last um, uh, kind of graphically sexual uh, thing. She is uh, bisexual. She's in her 50s. She was raised in a totally chaotic environment. She was a victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, she writes, babysitter molested me when I was around seven or eight. Neighborhood tried to fondle me. Uh, a neighbor tried to fondle me around the age of six. Uh, that would be really awkward if the neighborhood tried to fondle you at age six. Um, that is what I would call a shitty 4th of July party. Where else but here can we make a joke while in the middle of reading the history of somebody's sexual trauma. I'm a horrible person, but the good news is you don't have to throw me to the balls of hell. I'm reading this from there. If you remember correctly, uh, you all got together about a half hour ago and threw me down there. And I got to say, it's got a really nice view. It, it has a beautiful view. There's just a tiny window uh, of the core of the earth. And uh neighbor tried to fondle me around the age of six, and I was having sex with a 23-year-old when I was 14. Uh, she has been physically and emotionally abused. My father would, quote, spank me with a belt as young as four or five. He would spank me so hard I had welts. He stopped spanking me around seven. He said he was afraid he was unable to control himself. He did smack me in the head and grab me by the back of the neck. He would also take his fingers and thump me on the head so hard it would bruise. When I was 13, he punched me in the face because I dared him to. My mother was emotionally vacant. I left home at 15 to live with a 23-year-old man uh, I had sex with and became pregnant with. He was a nightmare of emotional abuse. He would kick me out once a month any positive experiences with the abusers. My father and I have talked a lot about certain times, and I forgive him. He has become a good father and grandfather. Mother, no positive. Darkest thoughts. I feel very attracted to young boys around the age of 10 to 14. I want to kiss and fondle them, have sex with them. Darkest secrets. I have had other people's infants suck on my breast while I masturbated. I still want to do this, but have promised myself not to. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want infants to suck on my breast while I masturbate. I want to kiss and lick young boys. I want young boys to kiss and lick me. Uh, how do you feel writing this? I feel turned on by writing this. Um, you know, I thought long and hard uh, about this, what to say, because you did cross that line. Uh, and even though it was an infant that probably had no idea what you were doing um it it 
it's a it's an alarm bell and i hope um because you say i still want to do this but have promised myself not to you know the danger with sexual compulsions is if no kind of healing or recovery takes place it's really not up to you whether or not you'll do these things it's up to the the addiction and the only choice you have is to be in recovery and know what is safe in your life where you can be trigger free how to deal with your emotions because when somebody does something like you like you did you're not doing people don't do that because they think it would be fun they do that and these are my opinions and from things I've read and just the nature of addiction. They do it because they're emotionally overwhelmed and they've been trained, even if not overtly, trained as a child to sexualize feelings to soothe themselves. Um, and I'm not saying this to, to shame you, to shame you. And I know people are going to email me and say, you should have shamed her. You know, nobody should do that. Um, you know, all of us have, have 90% of us have done things in our lives, um, that we're ashamed of. And that just happens to be your thing, but you have a responsibility to make sure that you are protecting children from this happening again. Um, What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Tell my mother that I think I actually hate her. Our relationship became emotional incest. She was sick. She even slept with a man I was sleeping with at age 14. She took me with her to bars and in inappropriate places starting around 13. I mean, God, look at this shit that you have been through. I mean, you you have just been trained to sexualize your feelings. And that's why I don't I don't want to shame you, but I I guess I want you to understand um I think you understand the enormity of your responsibility to not do that again, but I just want to highlight how fragile that dynamic can be as to whether or not that compulsion is within your power to resist. Uh, I wish I could, anything you wish for, I wish I could truly forget my childhood and teen years. Have you shared these things with others, with therapists and my husband? How do you feel after writing these things down bad? I'm, I'm sorry that, that you feel bad. And that's great that you've shared these things with uh, your therapist and your, uh, and your husband. Um, although you didn't say on here how it, how it went. But um, just... Do what you can to heal because that's the only thing you have control over. I'll just end it with that.
When we heal, a lot of things take care of themselves. A lot of things. Um, and now I'm judging myself that I didn't handle that right. Um, that <laughs> I, I made too big of a deal of it. I didn't make enough of a deal of it that you guys are going to uh, send me angry letters. You're going to stop listening. Um, she's going to kill herself. Um, <laughs> welcome to my brain. Welcome to my brain. And it is so freeing to be able to share that with you guys and have you embrace it. I know some of you get tired of it, but a lot of you email me and say, my brain works the exact same way. I constantly beat myself up over every decision I make. And this is like the greatest outlet for me to be able to let that anxiety go because perfectionism fucking sucks. Wicked One writes about her sex addiction. Give me all of you to make me feel like I have all of me. That is profound. Profound. Uh, struggle in a sentence. Lemon Lime and Incredibly Bitter writes, uh, this uh, woman, by the way, uh, should be a writer because a lot of times I'll only re read like one or two of the uh, struggle in the sentences that they have on their survey. And I think I'm going to read six, six of hers. Um, about her depression, life is meaningless, but text me. We'll make plans next week. I was a fan right there. I read that one and I'm like, um, about her anxiety, keeping a record of all the times I've claimed food poisoning so as to not raise any suspicions. About her bulimia, passing off my knowledge of laxatives and fiber-rich foods is something I learned working with the elderly. Oh, my God. Uh, about her codependency, we're going out for my birthday meal, and I can't wait to order whatever you can't decide between. <laughs> you are a fucking genius. You are a fucking genius. If you don't have a Twitter account, uh, you have to get one about her uh, complex PTSD. If I admit it, that means you've won. God, you are, you just have a way with words and a way of boiling things down to their, um, uh, another issue, coming to terms with emotionally absent parents. Um, but they saved up and hired that bouncy castle for my fifth birthday, so dot, 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 question mark. Um, thank you. Thank you for that. I mean, all the surveys, you guys are just amazing. This is an email that I, I talk about, talked about earlier um, about the person uh, who was afraid to go to therapy. And... Um, how does she want to be? Uh, oh, she's okay with me using her name. Uh, Cassie uh, wrote, After months of listening to the show, I called a therapist. I tried to email because I have difficulty speaking about anything emotional or real, but she requested I call, so I ended up picking up the phone and forcing my fingers to dial. Then she said, Hello, this is blank, and I immediately broke into a full-fledged episode of heaving and tears. I said things I don't like to say or think about, and she listened. 
I have an appointment in a few days. My life is on the line. I get worse every month, it seems, and have been since I was 11. I was in denial. When I thought of mental illness, I thought of facilities and people whacking each other with foam noodles. It just didn't seem like my crippling anxiety and fear of people, places, and basically everything in between was that. Excuse me. Um, I listened to you and your guests talk about your struggles and realized, unlike teen me, uh, unlike teen me thought, uh, age doesn't cure anything. I have to want it to be better. I have to try. Trying means hours of crying and self-hatred, but that's what I do if I wasn't trying. Uh, that's what I'd do if I wasn't trying. So actually, it's the fucking same thing. One just results in no possibility of change. My life feels like it will never be any different without hope. Um, but your show has given me hope because I know that trying is hope. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And then I said, um, I would love to know how your first therapy goes. And... She uh, wrote back, the therapist had me filling out paperwork and my hands shook as I did so. Totally normal. It felt strange to list off allergies and talk about mundane little things like my living situation, etc. But after we got past that, well, I talked about my dad for about, oh, 45 minutes. By the end, she had recommended support groups for adult children of alcoholics and given me herb recommendations and a good physician. I felt that validation you always talk about. She told me my father was a sociopath. Essentially, we got one foot in the water on my struggles, which I didn't mention before, but essentially, I have massive social anxiety, depression, general anxiety, obsessive thoughts, and sometimes I can't leave my home. It's great. I found the courage to tell her about my, quote, passive, as she called it, suicidal thoughts, and she listened and didn't make me feel shame. She even seemed secondhand horrified by all the events I described, my past traumas. I don't know what happened in there, but I feel lighter. I was worried she would downplay my problems, like my mind always tells me, that I'm lazy and worthless. That's, that's all that's wrong with me, but she didn't shame me or judge me. She praised me for attempting self-care for 10 years. She told me that not speaking to my father or other abusers was the healthiest thing to protect myself. And my guilt feels less severe. I don't want to make it sound like me avoiding things or avoiding help is a good call, but I tried really hard on my own for so long. And someone saying that was good, that I am not a senseless idiot, it's a beautiful feeling. I was worried about going in and feeling like all this stress was for nothing that it would be pointless and I'd leave even more hopeless and let down. Instead, I actually feel a little dot, 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 better question mark. I know it'll be work and I know, and now I have to muster the courage to go see a doctor she referred about a little medication to help me along with our therapy once a week. She didn't push it onto me. She told me to consider it. And maybe if I didn't want to, we could try more natural means first. But at this point, I'm just so bad, I'm willing to try medication for the first time. Uh, Thank you so much for your show and all your guests uh, who have given me the courage to reach out at all. I really don't know why I thought I was ever alone. God. I, I know this sounds corny, but I feel like I'm the luckiest guy in the world that, that I get to have a front row seat for hope coming into some people's lives and, and them walking through that, 
that fear that seems like a brick wall and is really just a paper thin. This is a happy moment filled out by fighting off my Stepford double. I think we had one of her surveys read earlier. And um, her happy moment is um, when they called for newcomers at my first recovering meeting, um, I shared with them my struggle to both raise my hand and sink down into my seat. And all the new voices around me erupted into laughter. I realized then that everyone here knew exactly what I was talking about. I found my tribe. Recovery works. Just just fills my soul. This is an awful moment filled out by Dolores Clitoris. And uh, she writes, um, My boyfriend and I were having great morning sex with our strap-on. Uh, he's trans and I'm cis. And uh, then I started bleeding profusely from my vagina. I wasn't on my period, and we weren't even being rough. I hadn't had anything to eat or drink yet that day, and I started to feel lightheaded from the blood loss. We went to urgent care, and the doctor and nurse immediately asked if there was any chance I might be pregnant. I told them no, because my boyfriend and I don't have the parts for that. The nurse left the room, and I was left with the doctor, still feeling dizzy, hoping to get some explanation for the sudden bleeding. Instead, he sat down with me and said, can I go get your boyfriend and bring him in here? I'm trans and nobody here knows it. So the doctor and my boyfriend had a friendly chat about being transgender while I lay on the medical bed, slowly bleeding out from the vagina. <laughs> I really should have ended on that one, but I this next one is so sweet. Um, I, I felt the need to read this this next one, but in a way, it kind of really can't follow that one. Uh, this is filled out by uh, Monkey Dick Mike, and he writes, In 1971, I'm eight years old and out of school for the summer. I'm sitting in the backyard with my older sister, bored to tears, playing some dumb game she made up, when my ears perk up to the familiar, far-away sound of turkey in the straw. Ice cream man. We rush inside and beg my mom for change, and she rustles through her purse and hands us a dollar. We run outside onto the burning summer Las Vegas pavement in our bare feet, but not caring how much it hurts. All that matters is that we chase down the ice cream truck. Three blocks later, sweaty, out of breath, we both order giant red, white, and blue bomb pops, because as everyone knows, they are the best thing in the world. We sit down on the curb and lick the ice cream, not caring that the hot sun is melting the bomb pop down our arms faster than we can consume it. We look at each other and laugh. Just love it. Well, I hope you guys liked this episode. I hope you got something out of the surveys. I hope you reconsider having cast me to hell. Um, it's a little novel being down here, but I'm going to be honest, it's getting a little stuffy. It's uh, it's very hot down here. So maybe next week um, you could bring me back up so I can do the episode. And I'm getting really tired of this bit and I don't know how to end it. So I'm just going to say... There's hope. 
there's help out there. Get out of your comfort zone. You'd be amazed at the results. You're not alone. I hate this little sing-song pattern I've gotten into. Go fuck yourself. And thank you for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up.